This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clairvoyance by Algernon Blackwood In the darkest corner, where the firelight could not reach him, he sat listening to the stories. His young hostess occupied the corner on the other side. She was also screened by shadows, and between them stretched the horseshoe of eager, frightened faces that seemed all eyes. Behind yawned the blackness of the big room, running as it were without a break into the night. Someone crossed on tiptoe and drew a blind up with a rattle, and at the sound all started. Through the window, opened at the top, came a rustle of the poplar leaves that stirred like footsteps in the wind. "'There's a strange man walking past the shrubberies,' whispered a nervous girl. "'I saw him crouch and hide. I saw his eyes!' "'Nonsense!' came sharply from a male member of the group. "'It's far too dark to see. You heard the wind.' For mist had risen from the river just below the lawn pressing close against the windows of the old house like a soft gray hand, and through it the stir of leaves was faintly audible. Then, while several called for lights, others remembered that hop-pickers were still about in the lanes, and the tramps this autumn overbold and insolent. All, perhaps, wished secretly for the sun. Only the elderly man in the corner sat quiet and unmoved, contributing nothing. He had told no fearsome story. He had evaded, indeed, many openings expressly made for him, though fully aware that to his well-known interest in psychical things was partly due his presence in the weekend party. "'I never have experiences that way,' he said shortly, when someone asked him point-blank for a tale. "'I have no unusual powers.' There was perhaps the merest hint of contempt in his tone, but the hostess from her darkened corner quickly and tactfully covered his retreat. And he wondered, for he knew why she invited him. The haunted room, he was well aware, had been specially allotted to him. And then, most opportunely, the door opened noisily and the host came in. He sniffed at the darkness, rang at once for lamps, puffed at his big curved pipe, and generally, by his mere presence, made the group feel rather foolish. Light streamed past him from the corridor. His white hair shone like silver, and with him came the atmosphere of common sense, of shooting, agriculture, motors, and the rest. Age entered at that door, and his young wife sprang up instantly to greet him, as though his disapproval of this kind of entertainment might need humoring. It might have been the light, that witchery of half-lights from the fire in the corridor, or it may have been the abrupt entrance of the practical upon the soft imaginative that traced the outline with such pitiless sharp conviction. At any rate, the contrast, for those who had this inner clairvoyant sight all had been prating of so glibly, was unmistakably revealed. It was poignantly dramatic, pain somewhere in it, naked pain. For, as she paused a moment there beside him in the light, 
this childless wife of three years standing picture of youth and beauty there stood upon the threshold of that room the presence of a true ghost story and most marvelously she changed her lineaments her very figure her whole presentment etched against the gloom the delicate unmarked face shone suddenly keen and anguished and a rich maturity deeper than any mere age flushed all her little person with its secret grandeur lines started into being upon the pale skin of the girlish face lines of pleading pity and love the daylight did not show and with them an air of magic tenderness that betrayed though for a second only the full soft glory of a motherhood denied yet somehow mysteriously enjoyed about her slenderness rose all the deep-bosomed sweetness of maternity a potential mother of the world and a mother though she might know no dear fulfillment who yet yearned to sweep into her immense embrace all the little helpless things that ever lived light like emotion can play strangest tricks the change pressed almost upon the edge of revelation yet when a moment later lamps were brought it is doubtful if any but the silent guest who had told no marvelous tale knew no psychical experience and disclaimed the smallest clairvoyant faculty had received and registered the vivid poignant picture for an instant it had flashed there mercilessly clear for all to see who were not blind to subtle spiritual wonder thick with pain and it was not so much mere picture of youth and age ill-matched as of youth that yearned with the oldest craving in the world and of age that had slipped beyond the power of sympathetically divining it it passed and all was as before the husband laughed with genial good nature not one whit annoyed they've been frightening you with stories child he said in his jolly way and put a protective arm about her haven't they now tell me the truth much better he added have joined me instead at billiards or for a game of patience eh she looked up shyly into his face and he kissed her on the forehead perhaps they have a little dear she said but now that you've come i feel all right again another night of this he added in a graver tone and you'd be at your old trick of putting guests to sleep in the haunted room I was right after all, you see, to make it out of bounds. He glanced fondly, paternally, down upon her. Then he went over and poked the fire into a blaze. Someone struck up a waltz on the piano, and couples danced. All trace of nervousness vanished, and the butler presently brought in the tray with drinks and biscuits, and slowly the group dispersed. Candles were lit. They passed down the passage into the big hall, talking in lowered voices of tomorrow's plans the laughter died away as they went up the stairs to bed the silent guest and the young wife lingering a moment over the embers you have not after all then put me in your haunted room he asked quietly you mentioned you remember in your letter i admit she replied at once her manner gracious beyond her years her voice quite different that I wanted you to sleep there. Someone, I mean, who really knows and is not merely curious. But, forgive my saying so, when I saw you, 
she laughed very slowly and when you told no marvelous story like the others i somehow felt but i never see anything he put in hurriedly you feel though she interrupted swiftly the passionate tenderness in her voice but half suppressed i can tell it from your others then he interrupted abruptly almost bluntly have slept there sat up rather not recently my husband stopped it she paused a second then added i had that room for a year when first we married the other's anguished look flew back upon her little face like a shadow and was gone while at the sight of it there rose in himself a sudden deep rush of wonderful amazement beckoning almost toward worship he did not speak for his voice would tremble i had to give it up she finished very low was it so terrible after a pause he ventured she bowed her head i had to change she repeated softly and since then now you see nothing he asked her reply was singular because i will not not because it's gone he followed her in silence to the door and as they passed along the passage again that curious great pain of emptiness of loneliness of yearning rose upon him as of a sea that never never can swim beyond the shore to reach the flowers that it loves hurry up child or a ghost will catch you cried her husband leaning over the banisters as the pair moved slowly up the stairs towards him there was a moment's silence when they met the guest took his lighted candle and went down the corridor good nights were said again they moved away she to her loneliness he to his unhaunted room and at his door he turned at the far end of the passage silhouetted against the candlelight he watched them the fine old man with his silvered hair and heavy shoulders and the slim young wife with that amazing air as of some great bountiful mother of the world for whom the years yet passed hungry and unharvested they turned the corner and he went in and closed his door sleep took him very quickly and while the mist rose up and veiled the countryside something else veiled equally for all other sleepers in that house but two drew on towards its climax some hours later he awoke the world was still and it seemed the whole house listened for with that clear vision which some bring out of sleep he remembered that there had been no direct denial and of a sudden realized that this big gaunt chamber where he lay was after all the haunted room for him however the entire world not merely separate rooms in it was ever haunted and he knew no terror to find the space about him charged with thronging life quite other than his own he rose and lit the candle crossed over to the window where the mist shone gray knowing that no barriers of walls or door or ceiling could keep out this host of presences that poured so thickly everywhere about him it was like a wall of being with peering eyes small hands stretched out a thousand pattering wee feet and tiny voices crying in a chorus very faintly and beseeching the haunted room 
was it not rather a temple vestibule prepared and sanctified by yearning rites few men might ever guess for all the childless women of the world how could she know that he would understand this woman he had seen but twice in all his life and how entrust to him so great a mystery that was her secret had she so easily divined in him a similar yearning to which long years ago death had denied fulfillment was she clairvoyant in the true sense and did all faces bear on them so legibly this great map that sorrow traced and then with awful suddenness mere feelings dipped away and something concrete happened the handle of the door had faintly rattled he turned the round brass knob was slowly moving and first at the sight something of common fear did grip him as though his heart had missed a beat but on the instant he heard the voice of his own mother now long beyond the stars calling to him to go softly yet with speed he watched a moment the feeble efforts to undo the door yet never afterwards could swear that he saw actual movement for something in him tragic as blindness rose through a mist of tears and darkened vision utterly he went towards the door he took the handle very gently and very softly then he opened it beyond was darkness he saw the empty passage the edge of the banisters where the great hall yawned below and dimly the outline of the alpine photograph and the stuffed deer's head upon the wall and then he dropped upon his knees and opened wide his arms to something that came in upon uncertain viewless feet all the young winds and flowers and dews of dawn passed with it filling him to the brim covering closely his breast and eyes and lips there clung to him all the small beginnings of life that cannot stand alone the little helpless hands and arms that have no confidence and when the wealth of tears and love that flooded his heart seemed to break upon the frontiers of some mysterious yet impossible fulfillment he rose and went with curious small steps towards the window to taste the cooling misty air of that other dark emptiness that waited so patiently there above the entire world he drew the sash up the air felt soft and tender as though there were somewhere children in it too children of stars and flowers of mists and wings and music all that the universe contains unborn and tiny and when at length he turned again the door was closed the room was empty of any life but that which lay so wonderfully blessed within himself and this he felt had marvelously increased and multiplied sleep then came back to him and in the morning he left the house before the others were astir pleading some overlooked engagement for he had seen ghosts indeed but yet no ghost that he could talk about with others round an open fire end of clairvoyance by algernon blackwood This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, 
please visit LibriVox.org. Green Tea by Joseph Sheridan Lefanu, read by Chris Turtle. Part One. Prologue. Martin Hesselius, the German physician. Though carefully educated in medicine and surgery, I have never practised either. The study of each continues, nevertheless, to interest me profoundly. Neither idleness nor caprice caused my secession from the honourable calling which I had just entered. The cause was a very trifling scratch inflicted by a dissecting knife. This trifle cost me the loss of two fingers, amputated promptly, and the more painful loss of my health, for I have never been quite well since, and have seldom been twelve months together in the same place. In my wanderings I became acquainted with Dr. Martin Hesselius, a wanderer like myself, like me a physician, and like me an enthusiast in his profession. Unlike me in this, that his wanderings were voluntary, and he a man, if not of fortune, as we estimate fortune in England, at least in what our forefathers used to term easy circumstances. He was an old man when I first saw him, nearly five and thirty years my senior. In Dr. Martin Hesselius I found my master. His knowledge was immense, his grasp of a case was an intuition. He was the very man to inspire a young enthusiast like me with awe and delight. My admiration has stood the test of time, and survived the separation of death. I am sure it was well founded. For nearly twenty years I acted as his medical secretary. His immense collection of papers he has left in my care to be arranged, indexed, and bound. His treatment of some of these cases is curious. He writes in two distinct characters. He describes what he saw and heard as an intelligent layman might, and when in this style of narrative he had seen the patient either through his own hall door to the light of day, or through the gates of darkness to the caverns of the dead, he returns upon the narrative, and in the terms of his art, and with all the force and originality of genius, proceeds to the work of analysis, diagnosis, and illustration. Here and there a case strikes me as of a kind to amuse or horrify a lay reader with an interest quite different from the peculiar one which it may possess for an expert. With slight modification, chiefly of language, and of course a change of names, I copy the following. The narrator is Dr. Martin Hesselius. I find it among the voluminous notes of cases which he made during a tour in England about sixty-four years ago. It is related in a series of letters to his friend, Professor Van Loo of Leyden. The professor was not a physician, but a chemist, and a man who read history and metaphysics and medicine, and had in his day written a play. The narrative is therefore, if somewhat less valuable as a medical record, necessarily written in a manner more likely to interest an unlearned reader. These letters, from a memorandum attached, appear to have been returned on the death of the professor in 1819 to Dr. Hesselius. They are written, some in English, some in French, but the greater part in German. I am a faithful, though I am conscious, by no means a graceful translator, and although here and there I omit some passages, and shorten others, and disguise names, I have interpolated nothing. 1. Dr. Hesselius relates how he met the Reverend Mr. Jennings. The Reverend Mr. Jennings is tall and thin. He is middle-aged, and dresses with a natty, old-fashioned, high-church precision. He is naturally a little stately, but not at all stiff. His features, without being handsome, are well-formed, and their expression extremely kind, but also shy. I met him one evening at Lady Mary Hayduke's. The modesty and benevolence of his countenance are extremely prepossessing. We were but a small party, 
and he joined agreeably enough in the conversation. He seems to enjoy listening very much more than contributing to the talk, but what he says is always to the purpose and well said. He is a great favourite of Lady Mary's, who, it seems, consults him upon many things, and thinks him the most happy and blessed person on earth. Little she knows about him. The Reverend Mr. Jennings is a bachelor, and has, they say, sixty thousand pounds in the funds. He is a charitable man. He is most anxious to be actively employed in his sacred profession, and yet, though always tolerably well elsewhere, when he goes down to his vicarage in Warwickshire to engage in the actual duties of his sacred calling, his health soon fails him, and in a very strange way. So says Lady Mary. There is no doubt that Mr. Jennings' health does break down in generally a sudden and mysterious way, sometimes in the very act of officiating in his old and pretty church at Kenlis. It may be his heart, it may be his brain, but it has happened three or four times, or oftener, that after proceeding a certain way in the service, he has on a sudden stopped short, and after a silence, apparently quite unable to resume, he has fallen into solitary, inaudible prayer, his hands and his eyes uplifted, and then, pale as death, and in the agitation of a strange shame and horror, descended, trembling, and got into the vestry-room, leaving his congregation without explanation to themselves. This occurred when his curate was absent. When he goes down to Kenlis now, he always takes care to provide a clergyman to share his duty, and to supply his place on the instant should he become thus suddenly incapacitated. When Mr. Jennings breaks down quite, and beats a retreat from the vicarage and returns to London, where, in a dark street off Piccadilly, he inhabits a very narrow house, Lady Mary says that he is always perfectly well. I have my opinions about that. There are degrees, of course. We shall see. Mr. Jennings is a perfectly gentlemanlike man. People, however, remark something odd. There's an impression a little ambiguous. One thing which certainly contributes to it people, I think, don't remember, or perhaps distinctly remark. But I did, almost immediately. Mr. Jennings has a way of looking sidelong upon the carpet, as if his eye follows the movements of something there. This, of course, is not always. It occurs only now and then. But often enough to give a certain oddity, as I have said, to his manner, and in this glance travelling along the floor there is something both shy and anxious. A medical philosopher, as you are good enough to call me, elaborating theories by the aid of cases sought out by himself, and by him watched and scrutinized with more time at command, and consequently infinitely more minuteness than the ordinary practitioner can afford, falls insensibly into habits of observation which accompany him everywhere, and are exercised, as some people would say, impertinently, upon every subject that presents itself with the least likelihood of rewarding inquiry. There was a promise of this kind, in the slight, timid, kindly, but reserved gentleman, whom I met for the first time at this agreeable little evening gathering. I observed, of course, more than I here set down, but I reserve all that borders on the technical for a strictly scientific paper. I may remark that when I here speak of medical science, I do so as I hope some day to see it more generally understood, in a much more comprehensive sense than its generally material treatment would warrant. I believe the entire natural world is but the ultimate expression of that spiritual world from which and which alone it has its life. I believe that the essential man is a spirit, that the spirit is an organized substance, but is different in point of material from what we ordinarily understand by matter, as light or electricity is, 
that the material body is, in the most literal sense, a vesture, and death, consequently, no interruption of the living man's existence, but simply his extrication from the natural body, a process which commences at the moment of what we term death, and the completion of which, at furthest a few days later, is the resurrection in power. The person who weighs the consequences of these positions will probably see their practical bearing upon medical science. This is, however, by no means the proper place for displaying the proofs and discussing the consequences of this too generally unrecognized state of facts. In pursuance of my habit, I was covertly observing Mr. Jennings. With all my caution, I think he perceived it, and I saw plainly that he was as cautiously observing me. Lady Mary happened to address me by my name, as Dr. Hesselius. I saw that he glanced at me more sharply, and then became thoughtful for a few minutes. After this, as I conversed with the gentleman at the other end of the room, I saw him look at me more steadily, and with an interest which I thought I understood. I then saw him take an opportunity of chatting with Lady Mary, and was, as one always is, perfectly aware of being the subject of a distant inquiry and answer. This tall clergyman approached me by and by, and in a little time we got into conversation. When two people who like reading and know books and places, having travelled, wish to discuss, it is very strange if they can't find topics. It was not accident that brought him near me, and led him into conversation. He knew German, and had read my essays on metaphysical medicine, which suggest more than they actually say. This courteous man, gentle, shy, plainly a man of thought and reading, who, moving and talking among us, was not altogether of us, and whom I already suspected of leading a life whose transactions and alarms were carefully concealed with an impenetrable reserve, from not only the world, but from his best beloved friends, was cautiously weighing in his own mind the idea of taking a certain step with regard to me. I penetrated his thoughts, without his being aware of it, and was careful to say nothing which could betray to his sensitive vigilance my suspicions respecting his position, or my surmises about his plans respecting myself. We chatted upon indifferent subjects for a time, but at last he said, I was very much interested by some paper of yours, Dr. Hesselius, upon what you term metaphysical medicine. I read them in German, ten or twelve years ago. Have they been translated? No, I'm sure they have not, I should have heard. They would have asked my leave, I think. I asked the publishers here a few months ago to get the book for me in the original German, but they tell me it is out of print. So it is, and has been for some years, but it flatters me as an author to find that you have not forgotten my little book, although, I added laughing, ten or twelve years is a considerable time to have managed without it. But I suppose you have been turning the subject over again in your mind, or something has happened lately to revive your interest in it. At this remark, accompanied by a glance of inquiry, a sudden embarrassment disturbed Mr. Jennings, analogous to that which makes a young lady blush and look foolish. He dropped his eyes, and folded his hands together uneasily, and looking oddly, and you would have said guiltily for a moment. I helped him out of his awkwardness in the best way, by appearing not to observe it, and going straight on, I said. Those revivals of interest in a subject happen to me often. One book suggests another, and often sends me back on a wild goose chase over an interval of twenty years. But if you still care to possess a copy, I shall be only too happy to provide you. I have still got two or three by me, and if you allow me to present one, I shall be very much honoured. You are very good indeed, he said, quite at his ease again. In a moment. I almost despaired, 
I, I don't know how to thank you. Pray don't say a word. The thing is of really so little worth that I am only ashamed of having offered it, and if you thank me any more I shall throw it into the fire in a fit of modesty. Mr. Jennings laughed. He inquired where I was staying in London, and after a little more conversation on a variety of subjects, he took his departure. 2. The doctor questions Lady Mary, and she answers. "'I like your vicar so much, Lady Mary,' said I, as soon as he was gone. "'He has read, travelled, and thought, and having also suffered, he ought to be an accomplished companion.' "'So he is, and better still, he is a really good man,' said she. "'His advice is invaluable about my schools, and all my little undertakings at Dalbridge, and he's so painstaking, he takes so much trouble, you have no idea. Wherever he thinks he can be of use, he's so good-natured and so sensible.' It is pleasant to hear so good an account of his neighbourly virtues. I can only testify to his being an agreeable and gentle companion. And in addition to what you have told me, I think I can tell you two or three things about him, said I. Really? Yes. To begin with, he's unmarried. Yes, that's right. Go on. He has been writing. That is, he was. But for two or three years, perhaps, he has not gone on with his work and the book was upon some rather abstract subject. Perhaps theology? Well, he was writing a book, as you say. I'm not quite sure what it was about, but only that it was nothing that I cared for. Very likely you are right, and he certainly did stop, yes. And although he only drank a little coffee here tonight, he likes tea, at least did like it, extravagantly. Yes, that's quite true. He drank green tea a good deal, didn't he? I pursued. Well, that's very odd. Green tea was a subject on which we used almost a quarrel. But he has quite given that up, said I. So he has. And now one more fact. His mother or his father? Did you know them? Yes, both. His father is only ten years dead, and their place is near Dalbridge. We knew them very well, she answered. Well, either his mother or his father... "'I should rather think his father saw a ghost,' said I. "'Well, you really are a conjurer, Dr. Hesselius.' "'Conjurer or no, haven't I said right?' I answered merrily. "'You certainly have, and it was his father. "'He was a silent, whimsical man, and used to bore my father about his dreams, "'and at last he told him a story about a ghost he had seen and talked with, "'and a very odd story it was. "'I remember it particularly, because I was so afraid of him.' This story was long before he died, when I was quite a child, and his ways were so silent and moping, and he used to drop in sometimes in the dusk, when I was alone in the drawing-room, and I used to fancy there were ghosts about him. I smiled and nodded. And now, having established my character as a conjurer, I think I must say good-night, said I. But how did you find it out? By the planets, of course, as the gypsies do, I answered, and so gaily we said good-night. Next morning I sent the little book he had been inquiring after, and a note to Mr. Jennings, and on returning late that evening I found that he had called at my lodgings and left his card. He asked whether I was at home, and asked at what hour he would be most likely to find me. Does he intend opening his case and consulting me professionally, as they say? I hope so. I have already conceived a theory about him. It is supported by Lady Mary's answers to my parting questions. I should like to ascertain more from his own lips. But what can I do consistent with good breeding to invite a confession? 
Nothing. I rather think he meditates one. At all events, my dear Van Loo, I shan't make myself difficult of access. I mean to return his visit to-morrow. It will only be civil, in return for his politeness, to ask to see him. Perhaps something may come of it. Whether much, very little, or nothing, my dear Van Loo, you shall hear. 3. Dr. Hesselius picks up something in Latin books. Well, I have called at Bolton Street. On inquiring at the door, I was told by the servant that Mr. Jennings was engaged very particularly with a gentleman, a clergyman from Kenlis, his parish in the country. Intending to reserve my privilege and to call again, I merely intimated that I should try another time, and had turned to go, when the servant begged my pardon, and asked me, looking at me a little more attentively than well-bred persons of his order usually do, whether I was Dr. Hesselius, and on learning that I was, he said, "'Perhaps, then, sir, you would allow me to mention it to Mr. Jennings, for I am sure he wishes to see you.' The servant returned in a moment with a message from Mr. Jennings, asking me to go into his study, which was, in effect, his back drawing-room, and promised to be with me in a very few minutes. This was really a study, almost a library. The room was lofty, with two tall slender windows and rich dark curtains. It was much larger than I had expected, and stacked with books on every side, from the floor to the ceiling. The upper carpet, for to my tread it felt that there were two or three, was a turkey carpet. My steps fell noiselessly. The way the bookcases stood out placed the windows, particularly narrow ones, in deep recesses. The effect of the room was, although extremely comfortable and even luxurious, decidedly gloomy, and aided by the silence almost oppressive. Perhaps, however, I ought to have allowed something for association. My mind had connected peculiar ideas with Mr. Jennings. I stepped into this perfectly silent room, of a very silent house, with a peculiar foreboding, and its darkness and solemn clothing of books, for except where two narrow-looking glasses were set in the wall, they were everywhere, helped this sombre feeling. While awaiting Mr. Jennings' arrival, I amused myself by looking into some of the books with which his shelves were laden. Not among these, but immediately under them, with their backs upwards on the floor, I lighted upon a complete set of Swedenborg's Arcana Celestia, in the original Latin, a very fine folio set, bound in the natalie livery which theology affects, pure vellum, namely, with gold letters and carmine edges. There were paper markers in several of these volumes. I raised and set them one after the other upon the table, and opening where these papers were placed, I read in the solemn Latin phraseology a series of sentences indicated by a pencilled line at the margin. Of these I copy here a few, translating them into English. When man's interior sight is opened, which is that of his spirit, then there appear the things of another life, which cannot possibly be made visible to the bodily sight. By the internal sight it has been granted me to see the things that are in the other life more clearly than I see those that are in the world. From these considerations it is evident that external vision exists from interior vision, and this from a vision still more interior, and so on. There are, with every man, at least two evil spirits. 
With wicked genii there is also a fluent speech, but harsh and grating. There is also among them a speech which is not fluent, wherein the descent of the thoughts is perceived as something secretly creeping along with it. The evil spirits associated with man are indeed from the hells, but when with man they are not then in hell, but are taken out thence. The place where they then are is in the midst between heaven and hell, and is called the world of spirits. When the evil spirits who are with man are in that world, they are not in any infernal torment, but in every thought and affection of the man, and so in all that the man himself enjoys. But when they are remitted into their hell, they return to their former state. If evil spirits could perceive that they were associated with man, and yet that they were spirits separated from him, if they could flow into the things of his body, they would attempt by a thousand means to destroy him, for they hate man with a deadly hatred. Knowing, therefore, that I was a man in the body, they were continually striving to destroy me, not as to the body only, but especially as to the soul. For to destroy any man or spirit is the very delight of the life of all who are in hell, but I have been continually protected by the Lord. Hence it appears how dangerous it is for man to be in a living consort with spirits, unless he be in the good of faith. Nothing is more carefully guarded from the knowledge of associate spirits than their being thus conjoined with a man, for if they knew it, they would speak to him, with the intention to destroy him. The delight of hell is to do evil to man, and to hasten his eternal ruin. A long note, written with a very sharp and fine pencil in Mr. Jennings' neat hand at the foot of the page, caught to my eye. Expecting his criticism upon the text, I read a word or two, and stopped, for it was something quite different, and began with these words, Deus miseriatur me. May God compassionate me. Thus warned of its private nature, I averted my eyes and shut the book, replacing all the volumes as I had found them, except one which interested me, and in which, as men studious and solitary in their habits will do, I grew so absorbed as to take no cognizance of the outer world, nor to remember where I was. I was reading some pages which refer to representatives and correspondence in the technical language of Swedenborg, and had arrived at a passage, the substance of which is that evil spirits, when seen by other eyes than those of their infernal associates, present themselves by correspondence in the shape of the beast, Fera, which represents their particular lust and life, in aspect direful and atrocious. This is a long passage, and particularizes a number of those bestial forms. 4. Four eyes were reading the passage. I was running the head of my pencil case along the line as I read it, and something caused me to raise my eyes. Directly before me was one of the mirrors I have mentioned, in which I saw reflected the tall shape of my friend, Mr. Jennings, leaning over my shoulder and reading the page at which I was busy, and with a face so dark and wild that I should hardly have known him. I turned and rose. He stood erect also, and with an effort laughed a little, saying, "'I came in and asked how you did, 
but without succeeding in awaking you from your book, so I could not restrain my curiosity, and very impertinently, I am afraid, peeped over your shoulder. This is not your first time of looking into those pages. You have looked into Swedenborg, no doubt, long ago. Oh, dear, yes, I owe Swedenborg a great deal. You will discover traces of him in the little book on metaphysical medicine, which you are so good as to remember. Although my friend affected a gaiety of manner, there was a slight flush in his face, and I could perceive that he was inwardly much perturbed. I'm scarcely yet qualified. I know so little of Swedenborg. I've only had them a fortnight, he answered, and I think they are rather likely to make a solitary man nervous. That is, judging from the very little I have read. I, I don't say they have made me so, he laughed, and I'm so very much obliged for the book. I hope you got my note. I made all proper acknowledgments and modest disclaimers. I never read a book that I go with so entirely as that of yours, he continued. I saw at once that there is more in it than is quite unfolded. Do you know Dr. Harley? he asked rather abruptly. In passing, the editor remarks that the physician here named was one of the most eminent who had ever practised in England. I did, having exchanged letters with him, and experienced from him great courtesy and considerable assistance during my visits to England. "'I think that the man one of the greatest fools I ever met in my life,' said Mr. Jennings. This was the first time I had ever heard him say a sharp thing of anybody, and such a term applied to so high a name a little startled me. "'Really? And in what way?' I asked. "'In his profession,' he answered. I smiled.' "'I mean this,' he said. "'He seems to me one half blind. "'I mean, one half of all he looks at is dark, "'preternaturally bright and vivid all the rest, "'and the worst of it is, it seems willful. "'I can't get him. "'I mean, he won't. "'I've had some experience of him as a physician, "'but I look on him as, in that sense, "'no better than a paralytic mind, "'an intellect half dead. "'I'll tell you, I know I shall sometime, "'all about it,' he said, with a little agitation.' "'You stay some months longer in England. "'If I should be out of town during your stay for a little time, "'would you allow me to trouble you with a letter?' "'I should be only too happy,' I assured him. "'Very good of you. "'I am so utterly dissatisfied with Harley.' "'A little leaning to the materialistic school,' I said. "'A mere materialist,' he corrected me. "'You can't think how that sort of thing worries one who knows better. "'You won't tell anyone, any of my friends you know, "'that I am hippish now, for instance. "'No one knows.' "'Not even Lady Mary, that I have seen Dr. Harley, or any other doctor, so pray don't mention it. "'And if I should have any threatening of attack, you'll kindly let me write, or, should I be in town, have, have a little talk with you.' "'I was full of conjecture, and unconsciously I found I had fixed my eyes gravely on him. "'For he lowered his for a moment, and he said, "'I see you think I might as well tell you now, or else you are forming a conjecture.' "'But you may as well give it up. "'If you were guessing all the rest of your life, "'you would never hit on it.' "'He shook his head, smiling, "'and over that wintry sunshine "'a black cloud suddenly came down, "'and he drew his breath in, "'through his teeth, as men do in pain. "'Sorry, of course, to learn "'that you apprehend occasion to consult any of us, "'but command me when and how you like, "'and I need not assure you "'that your confidence is sacred.' He then talked of quite other things, and in a comparatively cheerful way, and after a little time I took my leave. 5. Dr. Heselius is summoned to Richmond. 
We parted cheerfully, but he was not cheerful, nor was I. There are certain expressions of that powerful organ of spirit, the human face, which, although I have seen them often, and possess a doctor's nerve, yet disturb me profoundly. One look of Mr. Jennings haunted me. It had seized my imagination with so dismal a power that I changed my plans for the evening, and went to the opera, feeling that I wanted a change of ideas. I heard nothing of or from him for two or three days, when a note in his hand reached me. It was cheerful and full of hope. He said that he had been for some t little time so much better, quite well, in fact, that he was going to make a little experiment, and run down for a month or so to his parish, to try whether a little work might not quite set him up. There was in it a fervent religious expression of gratitude for his restoration, as he now almost hoped he might call it. A day or two later, I saw Lady Mary, who repeated what his note had announced, and told me that he was actually in Warwickshire, having resumed his clerical duties at Kenlis, and she answered, "'I begin to think that he is really perfectly well, and that there never was anything the matter, more than nerves and fancy. We are all nervous, but I fancy there is nothing like a little hard work for that kind of weakness, and he has made up his mind to try it. I should not be surprised if he did not come back for a year.' Notwithstanding all this confidence, only two days later I had this note, dated from his house off Piccadilly. Dear sir, I have returned disappointed. If I should feel at all able to see you, I shall write to ask you kindly to call. At present I am too low, and in fact simply unable to say all I wish to say. Pray don't mention my name to my friends. I can see no one. By and by, please God, you shall hear from me. I mean to take a run into Shropshire, where some of my people are. God bless you. May we, on my return, meet more happily than I can now write. About a week after this, I saw Lady Mary in her own house. The last person, she said, left in town, and just on the wing for Brighton, for the London season was quite over. She told me that she had heard from Mr. Jennings's niece, Martha, in Shropshire. There was nothing to be gathered from her letter, more than that he was low and nervous. In those words, of which healthy people think so lightly, what a world of suffering is sometimes hidden. Nearly five weeks had passed without any further news of Mr. Jennings. At the end of that time, I received a note from him. He wrote, I have been in the country, and have had a change of air, change of scene, change of faces, change of everything, and in everything but myself. I have made up my mind, so far as the most irresolute creature on earth can do it, to tell my case fully to you. If your engagements will permit, pray come to me to-day, to-morrow, or the next day, but pray defer as little as possible. You know not how much I need help. I have a quiet house at Richmond, where I now am. Perhaps you can manage to come to dinner, or to luncheon, or even to tea. You shall have no trouble in finding me out. The servant at Bolton Street, who takes this note, will have a carriage at your door at any hour you please, and I am always to be found. You will say that I ought not to be alone. I have tried everything. Come and see. I called up the servant, and decided on going out the same evening, which accordingly I did. He would have been much better in a lodging-house or hotel, I thought, as I drove up, through a short double row of sombre elms, to a very old-fashioned brick house, darkened by the foliage of these trees, which overtopped and nearly surrounded it. It was a perverse choice, 
for nothing could be imagined more triste and silent. The house, I found, belonged to him. He had stayed for a day or two in town, and finding it for some cause insupportable, he had come out here, probably because being furnished and his own, he was relieved of the thought and delay of selection by coming here. The sun had already set, and the red reflected light of the western sky illuminated the scene with the peculiar effect with which we are all familiar. The hall seemed very dark, but getting to the back drawing-room, whose windows commanded the west, I was again in the same dusky light. I sat down, looking out upon the richly wooded landscape that glowed in the grand and melancholy light, which was every moment fading. The corners of the room were already dark, all was growing dim, and the gloom was insensibly toning my mind, already prepared for what was sinister. I was waiting alone for his arrival, which soon took place. The door communicating with the front room opened, and the tall figure of Mr. Jennings, faintly seen in the ruddy twilight, came, with quiet stealthy steps, into the room. We shook hands and taking a chair to the window, where there was still light enough to enable us to see each other's faces, he sat down beside me, and placing his hand upon my arm, with scarcely a word of preface, began his narrative. 6. How Mr. Jennings Met His Companion The faint glow of the west, the pomp of the then lonely woods of Richmond were before us, behind and about us the darkening room, and on the stony face of the sufferer, for the character of his face, though still gentle and sweet, was changed, rested that dim, odd glow, which seems to descend and produce, where it touches, lights, sudden though faint, which are lost, almost without gradation, in darkness. The silence, too, was utter. Not a distant wheel, or bark, or whistle from without, and within the depressing stillness of an invalid bachelor's house. I guessed well the nature, though not even vaguely the particulars, of the revelations I was about to receive from that fixed face of suffering that so oddly flushed stood out, like a portrait of Shulkin's, before its background of darkness. It began, he said, on the 15th of October, three years and eleven weeks ago, and two days, I keep very accurate count, for every day is torment. If I leave anywhere a chasm in my narrative, tell me. About four years ago, I began a work which had cost me very much thought and reading. It was upon the religious metaphysics of the ancients. I know, said I, the actual religion of educated and thinking paganism, quite apart from symbolic worship, a wide and very interesting field. Yes, but not good for the mind, the Christian mind, I mean. Paganism is all bound together in essential unity, and with evil sympathy, their religion involves their art and both their manners, and the subject is, it is a degrading fascination and the nemesis sure. God forgive me. I wrote a great deal. I wrote late at night. I was always thinking on the subject, walking about wherever I was, everywhere. It thoroughly infected me. You are to remember that all the material ideas connected with it were more or less of the beautiful, the subject itself delightfully interesting, and I, then, without a care. He sighed heavily. I believe that everyone who sets about writing in earnest does his work, as a friend of mine phrased it, on something, 
tea or coffee or tobacco. I suppose there is a material waste that should be hourly supplied in such occupations, or that we should grow too abstracted, and the mind, as it were, pass out of the body, unless it were reminded often of the connection by actual sensation. At all events, I felt the want, and I supplied it. Tea was my companion. At first the ordinary black tea, made in the usual way, not too strong, but I drank a good deal, and increased its strength as I went on. I never experienced an uncomfortable symptom from it. I began to take a little green tea. I found the effect pleasanter. It cleared and intensified the power of thought so. I had come to take it frequently, but not stronger than one might take it for pleasure. I wrote a great deal out here. It was so quiet, and in this room. I used to sit up very late, and it became a habit with me to sip my tea, green tea, every now and then, as my work proceeded. I had a little kettle on my table that swung over a lamp, and made tea two or three times between eleven o'clock and two or three in the morning, my hours of going to bed. I used to go into town every day. I was not a monk, and although I spent an hour or two in a library hunting up authorities and looking out lights within my theme, I was in no morbid state as far as I can judge. I met my friends pretty much as usual, and enjoyed their society, on, and on the whole existence had never been, I think, so pleasant before. I had met with a man who had some odd old books, German editions in medieval Latin, and I was only too happy to be permitted access to them. This obliging person's books were in the city, a very out-of-the-way part of it. I had rather overstayed my intended hour, and on coming out, seeing no cab near, I was tempted to get into the omnibus which used to drive past this house. It was darker than this by the time the bus had reached an old house, you may have remarked, with four poplars at each side of the door, and there the last passenger but myself got out. We drove along rather faster. It was twilight now. I leaned back in my corner next the door, ruminating pleasantly. The interior of the omnibus was nearly dark. I had observed in the corner opposite to me at the other side, and at the end next the horses, two small circular reflections as it seemed to me, of a reddish light. They were about two inches apart, and about the size of those small brass buttons that yachting men used to put upon their jackets. I began to speculate, as listless men will, upon this trifle, as it seemed. From what centre did that faint but deep red light come? And from what? Glass beads, buttons, toy decorations? Was it reflected? We were lumbering along gently, having nearly a mile still to go. I had not solved the puzzle, and it became in another minute more odd, for these two luminous points, with a sudden jerk, descended nearer the floor, keeping still their relative distance and horizontal position, and then, as suddenly, they rose to the level of the seat on which I was sitting, and I saw them no more. My curiosity was now really excited, and before I had time to think, I saw again those two dull lamps, again together near the floor, again they disappeared, and again in their old corner I saw them. So, keeping my eyes upon them, I edged quietly up my own side, towards the end at which I still saw these tiny discs of red. There was very little light in the bus. It was nearly dark. I leaned forwards to aid my endeavour to discover what these little circles really were. They shifted their position a little as I did so. I began now to perceive an outline of something black, and I soon saw with tolerable distinctness 
the outline of a small black monkey, pushing its face forward in mimicry to meet mine. Those were its eyes, and I now dimly saw its teeth grinning at me. I drew back, not knowing whether it might not meditate a spring. I fancied that one of the passengers had forgot this ugly pet, and wishing to ascertain something of its temper, though not caring to trust my fingers to it, I poked my umbrella softly towards it. It remained immovable, up to it, through it. For through it, and back and forward it passed, without the slightest resistance. I can't in the least convey to you the kind of horror that I felt. When I had ascertained that the thing was an illusion, as I then supposed, there came a misgiving about myself, and a terror that fascinated me in impotence to remove my gaze from the eyes of the brute for some moments. As I looked, it made a little skip back, quite into the corner, and I, in a panic, found myself at the door, having put my head out, drawing deep breaths of the outer air, and staring at the lights and trees we were passing, too glad to reassure myself of reality. I stopped the bus and got out. I perceived the man looking oddly at me as I passed him. I dare say there was something unusual in my looks and manner, for I had never felt so strangely before. The End of Part One of Green Tea by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Green Tea by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu Read by Chris Turtle Part 2 7. The Journey, First Stage When the omnibus drove on, and I was alone upon the road, I looked carefully round to ascertain whether the monkey had followed me. To my indescribable relief I saw it nowhere. I can't describe easily what a shock I had received, and my sense of genuine gratitude on finding myself, as I supposed, quite rid of it. I had got out a little before we reached this house, two or three hundred steps. A brick wall runs along the footpath, and inside the wall is a hedge of yew, or some dark garden evergreen of that kind, and within that again the row of fine trees, which you may have remarked as you came. The brick wall is about as high as my shoulder, and happening to raise my eyes, I saw the monkey with that stooping gait on all fours, walking or creeping close beside me on top of the wall. I stopped, looking at it with a feeling of loathing and horror. As I stopped, so did it. It sat up on the wall with its long hands on its knees, looking at me. There was not light enough to see it much more than an outline, nor was it dark enough to bring the peculiar light of its eyes into strong relief. I still saw, however, that red, foggy light plainly enough. It did not show its teeth, nor exhibit any sign of irritation, but seemed jaded and sulky, and was observing me steadily. I drew back into the middle of the road. It was an unconscious recoil, and there I stood, still looking at it. It did not move. With an instinctive determination to try something, anything, I turned about and walked briskly towards town with a scant look all the time, watching the movements of the beast. It crept swiftly along the wall, at exactly my pace. 
where the wall ends near the end of the road it came down, and with a wiry spring or two brought itself close to my feet, and continued to keep up with me as I quickened my pace. It was at my left side, so close to my leg that I felt every moment as if I should tread upon it. The road was quite deserted and silent, and it was darker every moment. I stopped, dismayed and bewildered, turning as I did so the other way, I mean towards this house, away from which I had been walking. When I stood still, the monkey drew back to a distance of, I suppose, about five or six yards, and remained stationary, watching me. I had been more agitated than I have said. I had read, of course, as everyone has, something about spectral illusions, as you physicians term the phenomena of such cases. I considered my situation, and looked my misfortune in the face. These affections I had read are sometimes transitory, and sometimes obstinate. I had read of cases in which the appearance, at first harmless, had, step by step, degenerated into something direful and insupportable, and ended by wearing its victim out. Still, as I stood there, but for my bestial companion, quite alone, I tried to comfort myself by repeating again and again the assurance, The thing is purely disease, a well-known physical affection, as distinct as smallpox or neuralgia. Doctors are all agreed on that. Philosophy demonstrates it. I must not be a fool. I have been sitting up too late, and I dare say my digestion is quite wrong, and with God's help I shall be all right, and this is but a symptom of nervous dyspepsia. Did I believe all this? Not one word of it. No more than any other miserable being ever did, who was once seized and riveted in this satanic captivity. Against my convictions, I might say my knowledge, I was simply bullying myself into a false courage. I now walked homeward. I had only a few hundred yards to go. I had forced myself into a sort of resignation, but I had not got over the sickening shock and the flurry of the first certainty of my misfortune. I made up my mind to pass the night at home. The brute moved close beside me, and I fancied there was some sort of anxious drawing towards the house, which one sees in tired horses or dogs, sometimes as they come towards home. I was afraid to go into town. I was afraid of anyone seeing and recognizing me. I was conscious of an irrepressible agitation in my manner. Also, I was afraid of any violent change in my habits, such as going to a place of amusement, or walking from home in order to fatigue myself. At the hall door it waited till I mounted the steps, and when the door was opened, entered with me. I drank no tea that night. I got cigars and some brandy and water. My idea was that I should act upon my material system, and by living for a while in sensation apart from thought, send myself forcibly, as it were, into a new groove. I came up here to this drawing-room. I sat just there. The monkey then got up on a small table, and then stood there. It looked dazed and languid, and irrepressible uneasiness as to its movements kept my eyes always upon it. Its eyes were half-closed, but I could see them glow. It was looking steadily at me. In all situations, at all hours, it is awake and looking at me. That never changes. I shall not continue in detail my narrative of this particular night. I shall describe, rather, the phenomena of the first year, which never varied, essentially. I shall describe the monkey as it appeared in daylight. In the dark, as you shall presently hear, there are peculiarities. It is a small monkey, perfectly black. It has only one peculiarity, a character of malignity, unfathomable malignity. During the first year it looked sullen and sick, but this character of intense malice and vigilance was always underlying that surly languor. 
during all that time it acted as if on a plan of giving me as little trouble as consistent with watching me. Its eyes were never off me. I have never lost sight of it, except in my sleep, light or dark, day or night, since it came here, excepting when it withdraws for some weeks at a time unaccountably. In total dark it is as visible as in daylight. I do not mean merely its eyes. It is as visible distinctly in a halo that resembles a glow of red embers, and which accompanies it in all its movements. When it leaves me for a time, it is always at night, in the dark, and in the same way. It grows at first uneasy, and then furious, and then advances towards me, grinning and shaking, its paws clenched, and at the same time there comes the appearance of fire in the grate. I never have any fire. I can't sleep in the room where there is any. It draws nearer and nearer to the chimney, quivering, it seems, with rage, and when its fury rises to the highest pitch, it springs into the grate and up the chimney, and I see it no more. When first this happened, I thought I was released. I was now a new man. A day passed, a night, and no return. A blessed week, a week, another week. I was always on my knees, Dr. Hesselius, always thanking God and praying. A whole month passed of liberty, but on a sudden it was with me again. 8. THE SECOND STAGE It was with me and the malice which before was torpid under a sullen exterior was now active. It was perfectly unchanged in every other respect. This new energy was apparent in its activity and its looks, and soon in other ways. For a time, you will understand, the change was shown only in an increased vivacity, and an air of menace, as if it was always brooding over some atrocious plan. Its eyes, as before, were never off me. "'Is it here now?' I asked. "'No,' he replied. It has been absent exactly a fortnight and a day, fifteen days. It has sometimes been away so long as nearly two months, once for three. Its absence always exceeds a fortnight, although it may be by but a single day. Fifteen days having passed since I saw it last, it may return now at any moment. Is its return, I asked, accompanied by any particular manifestation? Nothing, no, he said. It is simply with me again. On lifting my eyes from a book, or turning my head, I see it as usual, looking at me, and then it remains, as before, for its appointed time. I have never told so much and so minutely before to anyone. I perceived that he was agitated, and looking like death, and he repeatedly applied his handkerchief to his forehead. I suggested that he might be tired, and told them that I would call with pleasure in the morning, but he said, "'No, if you don't mind hearing it all now.' I have got so far, and I should prefer making one effort of it. When I spoke to Dr. Harley, I had nothing like so much to tell. You are a philosophic physician. You give spirit its proper rank. If this thing is real, he paused, looking at me with agitated inquiry, we can discuss it by and by, and very fully. I will give you all I think, I answered after an interval. Well, very well. If it is anything real, I say, it is prevailing little by little, and drawing me more interiorly into hell. Optic nerves, he talked of. Ah, oh, well, there are other nerves of communication. May God Almighty help me. You shall hear. Its power of action, I tell you, had increased. Its malice became, in a way, aggressive. About two years ago, some questions that were pending between me and the bishop having been settled, I went down to my parish in Warwickshire. "'anxious to find occupation in my profession. 
I was not prepared for what happened, although I have since thought I might have apprehended something like it. The reason of my saying so is this. He was beginning to speak with a great deal more effort and reluctance, and sighed often, and it seemed at times nearly overcome. But at this time his manner was not agitated. It was more like that of a sinking patient who has given himself up. Yes, but I will first tell you about Kenlis, my parish. It was with me when I left this place for Dalbridge. It was my silent travelling companion, and it remained with me at the vicarage. When I entered on the discharge of my duties, another change took place. The thing exhibited an atrocious determination to thwart me. It was with me in the church, in the reading-desk, in the pulpits, within the communion rails. At last it reached this extremity, that while I was reading to the congregation, it would spring upon the open book, and squat there, so that I was unable to see the page. This happened more than once. I left Drawbridge for a time. I placed myself in Dr. Harley's hands. I did everything he told me. He gave my case a great deal of thought. It interested him, I think. He seemed successful. For nearly three months I was perfectly free from a return. I began to think I was safe. With his full assent I returned to Dalbridge. I travelled in a chaise. I was in good spirits. I was more. I was happy and grateful. I was returning, as I thought, delivered from a dreadful hallucination, to the scene of duties which I longed to enter upon. It was a beautiful sunny evening. Everything looked serene and cheerful, and I was delighted. I remember looking out of the window to see the spire of my church at Kenlis among the trees, at the point where one has the earliest view of it. It is exactly where the stream that bounds the parish passes under the road by a culvert, and where it emerges at the roadside, a stone with an old inscription is placed. As we passed this point, I drew my head in and sat down, and in the corner of the chaise was the monkey. For a moment I felt faint, and then quite wild with despair and horror. I called to the driver and got out, and sat down at the roadside, and prayed to God silently for mercy. A despairing resignation supervened. My companion was with me as I re-entered the vicarage. The same persecution followed. After a short struggle I submitted, and soon I left the place. "'I told you,' he said, "'that the beast has before this become in certain ways aggressive. "'I will explain a little. "'It seemed to be actuated by intense and increasing fury "'whenever I said my prayers, or even meditated prayer. "'It amounted at last to a dreadful interruption. "'You will ask how could a silent immaterial phantom affect that. "'It was thus.' Whenever I meditated praying, it was always before me, and nearer and nearer. It used to spring on a table, on the back of a chair, on the chimney-piece, and slowly to swing itself from side to side, looking at me all the time. There is in its motion an indefinable power to dissipate thought, and to contract one's attention to that monotony, till the ideas shrink, as it were, to a point, and at last to nothing, and unless I have started up and shaken off the catalepsy, I have felt as if my mind were on the point of losing itself. There are other ways, he sighed heavily. Thus, for instance, while I pray with my eyes closed, it comes closer and closer, and I see it. I know it is not to be accounted for physically, but I do actually see it, though my lids are closed, and so it rocks my mind, as it were, and overpowers me, and I am obliged to rise from my knees. If you had yourself ever known this, you would be acquainted with desperation. 9. THE THIRD STAGE 
"'I see, Dr. Hesselius, that you don't lose one word of my statement. "'I need not ask you to listen specifically to what I am now going to tell you. "'They talk of the optic nerves and of spectral illusions, "'as if the organ of sight was the only point assailable by the influences that have fastened upon me. "'I know better. "'For two years in my direful case that limitation prevailed. "'But as food is taken in softly at the lips and then brought under the teeth,' As the tip of the little finger caught in a mill-crank will draw in the hand and the arm and the whole body, so the miserable mortal who has been once caught firmly by the end of the finest fibre of his nerve is drawn in and in by the enormous machinery of hell, until he is as I am. Yes, doctor, as I am, for while I talk to you and implore relief, I feel that my prayer is for the impossible, and my pleading with the inexorable. I endeavoured to calm his visibly increasing agitation, and told him that he must not despair. While we talked, the night had overtaken us. The filmy moonlight was wide over the scene which the window commanded, and I said, "'Perhaps you would prefer having candles. The light, you know, is odd. I should wish you as much as possible under your usual conditions while I make my... Uh, diagnosis, shall I call it. Otherwise I don't care.' "'All lights are the same to me,' he said. "'Except when I read or write. I care not if night were perpetual.' I am going to tell you what happened about a year ago. The thing began to speak to me. Speak? How do you mean? Speak as a man does, do you mean? Yes. Speak in words and consecutive sentences, with perfect coherence and articulation. But there is a peculiarity. It is not like the tone of a human voice. It is not by my ears it reaches me. It comes like a singing through my head. This faculty, the power of speaking to me, will be my undoing. It won't let me pray. It interrupts me with dreadful blasphemies. I dare not go on. I could not. Oh, doctor, can the skill and thought and prayers of man avail me nothing? You must promise me, my dear sir, not to trouble yourself with unnecessarily exciting thoughts. Confine yourself strictly to the narrative of facts, and recollect, above all, that even if the thing that infests you be, as you seem to suppose, a reality with an actual independent life and will, yet it can have no power to hurt you, unless it be given from above. Its access to your senses depends mainly upon your physical condition, that is, under God, your comfort and reliance. We are all alike environed. It is only that in your case, the parries, the veil of the flesh, the screen, is a little out of repair, and sights and sounds are transmitted." We must enter on a new course, sir. Be encouraged. I'll give to-night to the careful consideration of the whole case. You are very good, sir. You think it worth trying. You don't give me quite up. But, sir, you don't know. It is gaining such an influence over me. It orders me about. It is such a tyrant. And I'm growing so helpless. May God deliver me. It orders you about? Of course, you mean by speech. Yes, yes. It is always urging me to crimes, to injure others or myself. You see, doctor, the situation is urgent. It is indeed. When I was in Shropshire, a few weeks ago, Mr. Jennings was speaking rapidly and trembling now, holding my arm with one hand and looking in my face. I went out one day with a party of friends for a walk. My persecutor, I tell you, was with me at the time. I lagged behind the rest. The country near the Dee, you know, is beautiful— our path happened to lie near a coal-mine, and at the verge of the wood is a perpendicular shaft, they say a hundred and fifty feet deep. My niece had remained behind with me. 
She knows, of course, nothing of the nature of my sufferings. She knew, however, that I had been ill, and was low, and she remains to prevent me being quite alone. As we loitered slowly on together, the brute that accompanied me was urging me to throw myself down the shaft. I tell you now, oh, sir, think of it, the one consideration that saved me from that hideous death was the fear lest the shock of witnessing the occurrence should be too much for the poor girl. I asked her to go on and take her walk with her friends, saying that I could go on no farther. She made excuses, and the more I urged her, the firmer she became. She looked doubtful and frightened. I suppose there was something in my looks or manner that alarmed her, but she would not go, and that literally saved me. "'You had no idea, sir, that a living man could be made so abject a slave of Satan,' he said, with a ghastly groan and a shudder. There was a pause here, and I said, "'You are preserved, nevertheless. It was the act of God. You are in his hands, and in the power of no other being. Be therefore confident for the future.'" 10. Home I made him have candles lighted, and saw the room looking cheery and inhabited before I left him. I told him that he must regard his illness strictly as one dependent on physical, though subtle, physical causes. I told him that he had evidence of God's care and love in the deliverance which he had just described, and that I had perceived with pain that he seemed to regard its peculiar features as indicating that he had been delivered over to spiritual reprobation. Then such a conclusion nothing could be, I insisted, less warranted, and not only so, but more contrary to facts, as disclosed in his mysterious deliverance from that murderous influence during his Shropshire excursion. First, his niece had been retained by his side without his intending to keep her near him, and secondly, there had been infused into his mind an irresistible repugnance to execute the dreadful suggestion in her presence. As I reasoned this point with him, Mr. Jennings wept. He seemed comforted. One promise I exacted, which was that should the monkey at any time return, I should be sent for immediately, and repeating my assurance that I would give neither time nor thought to any other subject until I had thoroughly investigated his case, and that to-morrow he should hear the result, I took my leave. Before getting into the carriage, I told the servant that his master was far from well, and that he should make a point of frequently looking into his room. My own arrangements I made with a view to being quite secure from interruption. I merely called at my lodgings, and with a travelling desk and carpet-bag, set off in a hackney carriage for an inn about two miles out of town, called The Horns, a very quiet and comfortable house, with good thick walls. And there I resolved, without the possibility of intrusion or distraction, to devote some hours of the night in my comfortable sitting-room to Mr. Jennings's case, and so much of the morning as it might require. There occurs here a careful note of Dr. Hesilius's opinion upon the case, and of the habits, diet, and medicines which he prescribed. It is curious, some persons would say mystical, but on the whole I doubt whether it would sufficiently interest a reader of the kind I am likely to meet with to warrant its being here reprinted. The whole letter was plainly written at the inn where he had hid himself for the occasion. The letter is dated from his town lodgings. I left town for the inn, where I slept last night at half-past nine, and did not arrive at my room in town until one o'clock this afternoon. I found a letter in Mr. Jennings' hand upon my table. It had not come by post, and on inquiry I learnt that Mr. Jennings' servant had brought it, and on learning that I was not to return until to-day, and that no one could tell him my address, he seemed very uncomfortable, and said that his orders from his master were that he was not to return without an answer. I opened the letter and read. Dear Dr. Hesilius, it is here. 
You had not been an hour gone when it returned. It is speaking. It knows all that has happened. It knows everything. It knows you, and is frantic and atrocious. It reviles. I send you this. It knows every word I have written. I write. This I promised, and I therefore write. But I fear very confusedly, very incoherently. I am so interrupted, disturbed. Ever yours, sincerely yours, Robert Linda Jennings. When did this come? I asked. About eleven last night. The man was here again, and has been here three times today. The last time was about an hour since. Thus answered, and with the notes I had made upon his case in my pocket, I was in a few minutes driving towards Richmond to see Mr. Jennings. I by no means, as you perceive, despaired of Mr. Jennings' case. He had himself remembered and applied, though quite in a mistaken way, the principle which I lay down in my metaphysical medicine, and which governs all such cases. I was about to apply it in earnest. I was profoundly interested, and very anxious to see and examine him while the enemy was actually present. I drove up to the sombre house, and ran up the steps and knocked. The door in a little time was opened by a tall woman in black silk. She looked ill, as if she had been crying. She curtsied and heard my question, but she did not answer. She turned her face away, extending her hand towards two men who were coming downstairs, and thus having, as it were, tacitly made me over to them, she passed through a side door hastily and shut it. The man who was nearest the hall I at once accosted, but being now close to him I was shocked to see that both his hands were covered with blood. I drew back a little, and the man passing downstairs merely said in a low tone, "'Here's the servant, sir.' The servant had stopped on the stairs, confounded and dumb at seeing me. He was rubbing his hands in a handkerchief, and it was steeped in blood. "'Jones, what is it? What has happened?' I asked, while a sickening suspicion overpowered me. The man asked me to come up to the lobby. I was beside him in a moment, and frowning and pallid with contracted eyes, he told me the horror which I already half-guessed. His master had made away with himself. I went upstairs with him to the room. What I saw there I won't tell you. He had cut his throat with his razor. It was a frightful gash. The two men had laid him on the bed and composed his limbs. It had happened, as the immense pool of blood on the floor declared, at some distance between the bed and the window. There was carpet round his bed, and a carpet under his dressing-table, but none on the rest of the room, for the man said he did not like a carpet in his bedroom. In this sombre and now terrible room, one of the great elms that darkened the house was slowly moving the shadow of one of its great bowers upon this dreadful floor. I beckoned to the servant, and we went downstairs together. I turned off the hall into an old-fashioned panelled room, and standing there I heard all the servant had to tell. It was not a great deal. I concluded, sir, from your words and looks, sir, as you left last night, that you thought my master seriously ill. I thought it might be that you were afraid of a fit or something, so I tended very close to your directions. He sat up late till past three o'clock. He was not writing or reading. He was talking a great deal to himself, but that was nothing unusual. About half the hour I assisted him to undress, and left him in his slippers and dressing-gown. I went back softly in about half an hour. He was in his bed, quite undressed, and a pair of candles lighted on the table beside his bed. He was leaning on his elbow, and looking out at the other side of the bed when I came in. I asked him if he wanted anything, and he said no. 
I don't know whether it was what you said to me, sir, or something a little unusual about him, but I was uneasy, uncommon uneasy about him last night. In another half hour, or it might have been a little more, I went up again. I did not hear him talking as before. I opened the door a little. The candles were both out, which was not usual. I had a bedroom candle, and I let the light in, a little bit, looking softly round. I saw him sitting in that chair beside the dressing-table, with his clothes on again. He turned round and looked at me. I thought it was strange he should get up and dress, and put out the candles to sit in the dark that way. But I only asked him again if I could do anything for him. He said, No. Rather sharp, I thought. I asked if I might light the candles, and he said, Do as you like, Jones. So I lighted them, and I lingered about the room, and he said, Tell me the truth, Jones. Why did you come again? Did you not hear anyone cursing? No, sir, I said, wondering what he could mean. No, said he after me. Of course, no. And I said to him, Wouldn't it be well, sir, if you went to bed? It's just five o'clock. And he said nothing but, Very likely. Good night, Jones. So I went, sir, but in less than an hour I came again. The door was fast, and he heard me, and called, as I thought, from the bed, to know what I wanted, and he desired me not to disturb him again. I lay down and slept for a little. It must have been between six and seven when I went up again. The door was still fast, and he made no answer, so I did not like to disturb him, and thinking he was asleep, I left him till nine. It was his custom to ring when he wished me to come, and I had no particular hour for calling him. I tapped very gently, and getting no answer, I stayed away a good while, supposing he was getting some rest then. It was not till eleven o'clock I grew really uncomfortable about him, for at the latest he was never, that I could remember, later than half-past ten. I got no answer. I knocked and called, but still no answer. So not being able to force the door, I called Thomas from the stables, and together we forced it, and found him in the shocking way you saw. Jones had no more to tell. Poor Mr. Jennings was very gentle, and very kind. All his people were fond of him. I could see that the servant was very much moved. So, dejected and agitated, I passed from that terrible house, and its dark canopy of elms, and I hope I shall never see it more. While I write to you, I feel like a man who has but half waked from a frightful and monotonous dream. My memory rejects the picture with incredulity and horror. Yet I know it is true. It is the story of the process of a poison. A poison which excites the reciprocal action of spirit and nerve, and paralyzes the tissue that separates these cognate functions of the senses, the external and the interior. Thus we find strange bedfellows, and the mortal and immortal prematurely make acquaintance. Conclusion A Word for Those Who Suffer My dear Van Loo, you have suffered from an affliction similar to that which I have just described. You twice complained of a return of it. Who under God cured you? Your humble servant, Martin Hesselius? Let me rather adopt the more emphasized piety of a certain good old French surgeon of three hundred years ago. I treated, and God cured you. Come, my friend, you are not to be hippish. Let me tell you a fact. I have met with, and treated, as my book shows, fifty-seven cases of this kind of vision, which I term indifferently sublimated, precocious, and interior. There is another class of afflictions which are truly termed, though commonly confounded with those which I describe, spectral illusions. These latter I look upon as being no less simply curable than a cold in the head or a trifling dyspepsia. 
it is those which rank in the first category that test our promptitude of thought. Fifty-seven such cases have I encountered, neither more nor less. And in how many of these have I failed? In no one single instance. There is no one affliction of mortality more easily and certainly reducible with a little patience and a rational confidence in the physician. With these simple conditions, I look upon the cure as absolutely certain. You are to remember that I had not even commenced to treat Mr. Jennings's case. I have not any doubt that I should have cured him perfectly in eighteen months, or possibly it might have extended to two years. Some cases are very rapidly curable, others extremely tedious. Every intelligent physician who will give thought and diligence to the task will effect a cure. You know my tract on the cardinal functions of the brain. I there, by the evidence of innumerable facts, prove, as I think, the high probability of a circulation, arterial and venous in its mechanism, through the nerves. Of this system, thus considered, the brain is the heart. The fluid, which is propagated hence through one class of nerves, returns in an altered state through another, and the nature of that fluid is spiritual, though not immaterial, any more than, as I before remarked, light or electricity or so. By various abuses, among which the habitual use of such agents as green tea is one, this fluid may be affected as to its quality, but it is more frequently disturbed as to equilibrium. This fluid, being that which we have in common with spirits, a congestion found upon the masses of brain or nerve connected with the interior sense, forms a surface unduly exposed, on which disembodied spirits may operate communication, is thus more or less effectually established. Between this brain circulation and the heart circulation, there is an intimate sympathy. The seat, or rather the instrument, of exterior vision is the eye. The seat of interior vision is the nervous tissue and brain, immediately about and above the eyebrow. You remember how effectually I dissipated your pictures by the simple application of iced eau de cologne. Few cases, however, can be treated exactly alike, with anything like rapid success. Cold acts powerfully as a repellent of the nervous fluid. Long enough continued, it will even produce that permanent insensibility which we call numbness, and a little longer, muscular as well as sensational paralysis. I have not, I repeat, the slightest doubt that I should have first dimmed and ultimately sealed that inner eye which Mr. Jennings had inadvertently opened. The same senses are opened in delirium tremens, and entirely shut up again when the overaction of the cerebral heart, and the prodigious nervous congestions that attend it, are terminated by a decided change in the state of the body. It is by acting steadily upon the body, by a simple process, that this result is produced, and inevitably produced. I have never yet failed. Poor Mr. Jennings made away with himself. But that catastrophe was the result of a totally different malady, which, as it were, projected itself upon that disease which was established. His case was in the distinctive manner a complication, and the complaint under which he really succumbed was hereditary suicidal mania. Poor Mr. Jennings I cannot call a patient of mine, for I had not even begun to treat his case. And he had not yet given me, I am convinced, his full and unreserved confidence. If the patient does not array himself on the side of the disease, his cure is certain. The End of Green Tea by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Haunted House by Virginia Woolf Read by Howard Dratch Whatever hour you woke, there was a door shunting. From room to room they went, hand in hand, lifting here, opening there, making sure, a ghostly couple. Here we left it, she said, and he added, Oh, but here too, it's upstairs, she murmured, and in the garden, he whispered. Quietly, they said, or we shall wake them. But it wasn't that you woke us, oh no. They're looking for it. They're drawing the curtain, one might say, and so read on a page or two. Now they've found it, one would be certain, stopping the pencil on the margin, and then, tired of reading, one might rise and see for oneself, the house all empty, the doors standing open, only the wood pigeons bubbling with content, and the hum of the threshing machine sounding from the farm. What did I come in here for? What did I want to find? My hands were empty. Perhaps it's upstairs, then. The apples were in the loft, and so down again, the garden still as ever, only the book had slipped into the grass. But they had found it in the drawing-room, not that one could ever see them. The window-panes reflected apples, reflected roses, all the leaves were green in the glass. If they moved in the drawing-room, the apple only turned its yellow side. Yet the moment after, if the door was opened, spread about the floor, hung upon the walls, pendant from the ceiling, what? My hands were empty. The shadow of a thrush crossed the carpet. From the deepest wells of silence, the wood pigeon drew its bubble of sound. Safe, 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 the pulse of the house beat softly. The treasure buried the room. The pulse stopped short. Oh, was that the buried treasure? A moment later, the light had faded. Out in the garden, then, but the trees spun darkness for a wandering beam of sun. So fine, so rare, coolly sunk beneath the surface, the beam I sought always burnt behind the glass. Death was the glass. Death was between us, coming to the woman first, hundreds of years ago, leaving the house, sealing all the windows, the rooms were darkened. He left it, left her, went north, went east, saw the stars turned in the southern sky, sought the house, found it dropped beneath the downs. Safe, 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 the pulse of the house beat gladly, the treasure yours. The wind roars up the avenue. Trees stoop and bend this way and that. Moonbeams splash and spill wildly in the rain. But the beam of the lamp falls straight from the window. The candle burns stiff and still. Wandering through the house, opening the windows, whispering not to wake us, the ghostly couple seeks their joy. Here we slept, she says, and he adds, kisses without number, waking in the morning, silver between the trees upstairs in the garden when summer came in winter snow time the doors go shutting far in the distance gently knocking like the pulse of a heart nearer they come cease at the doorway the wind falls the rain slides silver down the glass our eyes darken we hear no steps beside us we see no lady spread her ghostly cloak his hands shield the lantern Look, he breathes, sound asleep, love upon their lips. Stooping, holding their silver lamp above us, long they look and deeply, long they pause. 
the wind drives straightly, the flame stoops slightly, wild beams of moonlight cross both floor and wall, and meeting, stain the faces bent, the faces pondering, the faces that search the sleepers and seek their hidden joy. Safe, 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 the heart of the house beats proudly. Long years, he sighs. Again you found me. Here, she murmurs, sleeping in the garden, reading, laughing, rolling apples in the loft. Here we left our treasure. Stooping, their light lifts the lids upon my eyes. Safe, 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 the pulse of the house beats wildly. Waking, I cry, oh, is this your buried treasure, the light in the heart? End of a Haunted House by Virginia Woolf, read by Howard Dratch. The Haunted Orchard by Richard Legallien. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jessica Snyder, July 2007. The Haunted Orchard by Richard Legallien. Spring was once more in the world. As she sang to herself in the far-away woodlands, her voice reached even the ears of the city, weary with the long winter. Daffodils flowered at the entrances to the subway, furniture-removing vans blocked the side streets, children clustered like blossoms on the doorsteps, the open cars were running, and the cry of the cash-clow man was once more heard in the land. Yes, it was the spring, and the city dreamed wistfully of lilacs and the dewy piping of birds in gnarled old apple-trees of dogwood lighting up with sudden silver the thickening woods, of water-plants unfolding their glossy scrolls in pools of morning freshness. On Sunday mornings the outbound trains were thronged with eager pilgrims, hastening out of the city to behold once more the ancient marvel of the spring, and on Sunday evenings the railway term and I were a flower with banners of blossom from rifled woodland and orchard carried in the hands of the returning pilgrims, whose eyes still shone with the spring magic, in whose ears still sang the fairy music. And as I beheld these signs of the vernal equinox, I knew that I, too, must follow the music forsake awhile the beautiful siren we call the city, and in the green silences meet once more my sweetheart, Solitude. As the train drew out of the Grand Central, I hummed to myself, I've a neater, sweeter maiden in a greener, cleaner land. And so I said good-bye to the city, and went forth with beating heart to meet the spring. I had been told of an almost forgotten corner on the south coast of Connecticut, where the spring and I could live in an inviolate loneliness, 
a place uninhabited save by birds and blossoms, woods and thick grass, and an occasional silent farmer, and pervaded by the breath and shimmer of the sound. Nor had rumor lied, for when the train set me down at my destination, I stepped out into the most wonderful green hush. A leafy Sabbath silence through which the very train, as it went farther on its way, seemed to steal as noiselessly as possible for fear of breaking the spell. After a winter in the town, to be dropped thus suddenly into the intense quiet of the countryside makes an almost ghostly impression upon one as of an enchanted silence, a silence that listens and watches, but never speaks finger on lip. There is a spectral quality about everything upon which the eye falls. The woods, like great green clouds, the wayside flowers, the still farmhouses half lost in orchard bloom, all seem to exist in a dream. Everything is so still, everything so supernaturally green. Nothing moves or talks except the gentle susurrus of the spring wind swaying the young buds high up in the quiet sky, or a bird now and again, or a little brook singing softly to itself among the crowding rushes. Though from the houses one notes here and there there are evidently human inhabitants of this green silence, none are to be seen. I have often wondered where the country folk hide themselves as I have walked hour after hour, past farm and croft and lonely dooryards and never caught sight of a human face. If you should want to ask the way, a farmer is as shy as a squirrel, and if you knock at a farmhouse door, all is as silent as a rabbit warren. As I walked along in the enchanted stillness, I came at length to a quaint old farmhouse, old colonial in its architecture embowered in white lilacs, and surrounded by an orchard of ancient apple-trees which cast a rich shade on the deep spring grass. The orchard had the impressiveness of those old religious groves dedicated to the strange worship of sylvan gods, gods to be found now only in Horace or Catullus and in the hearts of young poets to whom the beautiful antique Latin is still dear. The old house seemed already the abode of solitude. As I lifted the latch of the white gate and walked across the forgotten grass and up onto the veranda, already festooned with wisteria, and looked into the window, I saw solitude sitting by an old piano on which no composer later than Bach had ever been played. 
In other words, the house was empty. And going round to the back, where old barns and stables leaned together as if falling asleep, I found a broken pane, and so climbed in and walked through the echoing rooms. The house was very lonely. Evidently, no one had lived in it for a long time. Yet it was all ready for some occupant for whom it seemed to be waiting. Quaint old four-poster bedsteads stood in three rooms, dimity curtains and spotless linen, old oak chests and mahogany presses, and opening drawers in Chippendale sideboards, I came upon beautiful frail old silver and exquisite china that set me thinking of a beautiful grandmother of mine, made out of old lace and laughing wrinkles and mischievous old blue eyes. There was one little room that particularly interested me, a tiny bedroom all white, and at the window the red roses were already in bud. But what caught my eye with peculiar sympathy was a small bookcase in which were some twenty or thirty volumes wearing the same forgotten expression, forgotten and yet cared for, which lay like a kind of memorial charm upon everything in the old house. Yes, everything seemed forgotten, and yet everything curiously, even religiously, remembered. I took out book after book from the shelves, once or twice flowers fell out from the pages, and I caught sight of a delicate handwriting here and there, and frail markings. It was evidently the little intimate library of a young girl. What surprised me most was to find that quite half the books were in French, French poets and French romancers, a charming, very rare edition of Ronsard, a beautifully printed edition of Alfred de Musset, and a copy of Théophile Gautier's Mademoiselle de Montpy. How did these exotic books come to be there alone in a deserted New England farmhouse? This question was to be answered later in a strange way. Meanwhile, I had fallen in love with this sad, old, silent place, and as I closed the white gate and was once more on the road, I looked about for someone who could tell me whether or not this house of ghosts might be rented for the summer by a comparatively living man. I was referred to a fine old New England farmhouse, shining white through the trees a quarter of a mile away. There I met an ancient couple, a typical New England farmer and his wife, the old man, lean, chin-bearded, with keen gray eyes flickering occasionally with a shrewd humor, the old lady with a kindly old face of the withered apple type and ruddy. They were evidently prosperous people, but their minds, for some reason I could not at the moment divine, seemed to be divided between their New England desire to drive a hard bargain and their disinclination to let the house at all. 
Over and over again they spoke of the loneliness of the place. They feared I would find it very lonely. No one had lived in it for a long time, and so on. It seemed to me that afterwards I understood their curious hesitation, but at the moment only regarded it as a part of the circuitous New England method of bargaining. At all events, the rent I offered finally overcame their disinclination, whatever its cause, and so I came into possession, for four months, of that silent old house with the white lilacs and the drowsy barns and the old piano and the strange orchard, and, as the summer came on and the year changed its name from May to June, I used to lie under the apple trees in the afternoons, dreamily reading some old book and through half-sleepy eyelids watching the silken shimmer of the sound. I had lived in the old house for about a month when one afternoon a strange thing happened to me. I remember the date well. It was the afternoon of Tuesday, June 13th. I was reading, or rather dipping here and there, in Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. As I read, I remember that a little unripe apple with a petal or two of blossom still clinging to it fell upon the old yellow page. Then I suppose I must have fallen into a dream, though it seemed to me that both my eyes and my ears were wide open. For I suddenly became aware of a beautiful young voice singing very softly somewhere among the leaves. The singing was very frail, almost imperceptible, as though it came out of the air. It came and went fitfully, like the elusive fragrance of sweetbriar, as though a girl was walking to and fro, dreamily humming to herself in the still afternoon. Yet there was no one to be seen. The orchard had never seemed more lonely. And another fact that struck me as strange was that the words that floated to me out of the aerial music were French, half-sad, half-gay snatches of some long-dead singer of old France. I looked about for the origin of the sweet sounds, but in vain. Could it be the birds that were singing in French in this strange orchard? Presently the voice seemed to come quite close to me, so near that it might have been the voice of a dryad singing to me out of the tree against which I was leaning, and this time I distinctly caught the words of the sad little song. Jean de Rosignol, Jean de qui a but, though the voice was at my shoulder, I could see no one. And then the singing stopped with what sounded like a sob, and a moment or two later I seemed to hear a sound of sobbing far down the orchard. Then there followed silence, and I was left to ponder on the strange occurrence. Naturally, 
I decided that it was just a daydream between sleeping and waking over the pages of an old book. Yet when next day and the day after the invisible singer was in the orchard again, I could not be satisfied with such mere matter-of-fact explanation. went the voice to and fro through the thick orchard boughs. It was certainly uncanny to hear that voice going to and fro the orchard, there somewhere amid the bright sun-dazzled boughs, yet not a human creature to be seen, not another house even within half a mile. The most materialistic mind could hardly but conclude that here was something, quote, not dreamed of in our philosophy, end quote. It seemed to me that the only reasonable explanation was the entirely irrational one, that my orchard was haunted, haunted by some beautiful young spirit, with some sorrow of lost joy that would not let her sleep quietly in her grave. And next day I had a curious confirmation of my theory. Once more I was lying under my favorite apple-tree, half reading and half watching the sound, lulled into a dream by the whirr of insects and the spices called up from the earth by the hot sun. As I bent over the page, I suddenly had the startling impression that someone was leaning over my shoulder and reading with me, and that a girl's long hair was falling over me down on to the page. The book was the Ronsard that I had found in the little bedroom. I turned, but again there was nothing there. Yet this time I knew that I had not been dreaming, and I cried out, Poor child, tell me of your grief, that I may help your sorrowing heart to rest. But of course there was no answer. Yet that night I dreamed a strange dream. I thought I was in the orchard again in the afternoon, and once again heard the strange singing. But this time, as I looked up, the singer was no longer invisible. Coming toward me was a young girl with wonderful blue eyes filled with tears, and gold hair that fell to her waist. She wore a straight white robe that might have been a shroud or a bridal dress. She appeared not to see me, though she came directly to the tree where I was sitting. And there she knelt and buried her face in the grass, and sobbed as if her heart would break. Her long hair fell over her like a mantle, and in my dream I stroked it pityingly and murmured words of comfort for a sorrow I did not understand. Then I woke suddenly, as one does from dreams. The moon was shining brightly into the room. 
Rising from my bed, I looked out into the orchard. It was almost as bright as day. I could plainly see the tree of which I had been dreaming, and then a fantastic notion possessed me. Slipping on my clothes, I went out into one of the old barns and found a spade. Then I went to the tree where I had seen the girl weeping in my dream, and dug down at its foot. I had dug little more than a foot when my spade struck upon some hard substance, and in a few more moments I had uncovered and exhumed a small box, which, on examination, proved to be one of those pretty old-fashioned Chippendale work-boxes used by our grandmothers to keep their thimbles and needles in, their reels of cotton and skeins of silk. After smoothing down the little grave in which I had found it, I carried the box into the house, and under the lamplight examined its contents. Then at once I understood why that sad young spirit went to and fro the orchard, singing those little French songs. For the treasure-trove I had found under the apple-tree, the buried treasure of an unquiet, suffering soul, proved to be a number of love-letters written mostly in French in a very picturesque hand, letters, too, written but some five or six years before. Perhaps I should not have read them, yet I read them with such reverence for the beautiful and passionate love that animated them, and literally made them, quote, smell sweet and blossom in the dust, end quote, that I felt I had the sanction of the dead to make myself the confidant of their story. Among the letters were little songs two of which I had heard the strange young voice singing in the orchard, and, of course, there were many withered flowers and such like remembrances of bygone rapture. Not that night could I make out all the story, though it was not difficult to define its essential tragedy, and later on a gossip in the neighborhood and a headstone in the churchyard, told me the rest. The unquiet young soul that had sung so wistfully to and fro the orchard was my landlord's daughter. She was the only child of her parents, a beautiful, willful girl, exotically unlike those from whom she was sprung, and among whom she lived with a disdainful air of exile. She was, as a child, a little creature of fairy fancies, and as she grew up it was plain to her father and mother that she had come from another world than theirs. To them she seemed like a child in an old fairy tale, strangely found on his hearth by some shepherd as he returns from the field at evening, a little fairy girl swaddled in fine linen, and dowered with a mysterious bag of gold. Soon she developed delicate spiritual needs, to which her simple parents were strangers. From long truancies in the woods she would come home laden with mysterious flowers, and soon she came to ask for books and pictures and music of which the poor souls that had given her birth had never heard. Finally she had her way and went to study at a certain fashionable college. 
and there the brief romance of her life began. There she met a romantic young Frenchman, who had read Ronsard to her, and written her those picturesque letters I had found in the old mahogany workbox. And after a while the young Frenchman had gone back to France, and the letters had ceased. Month by month went by, and at length, one day, as she sat wistful at the window, looking out at the foolish sunlit road, a message came. He was dead. That headstone in the village churchyard tells the rest. She was very young to die. Scarcely nineteen years. And the dead who have died young, with all their hopes and dreams still like unfolded buds within their hearts, do not rest so quietly in the grave as those who have gone through the long day from morning until evening, and are only too glad to sleep. End of the Haunted Orchard by Richard Lagallien This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Clarica. Letter to Sura by Pliny the Younger. Our leisure furnishes me with the opportunity of learning from you, and you with that of instructing me. Accordingly, I particularly wish to know whether you think there exist such things as phantoms, possessing an appearance peculiar to themselves, and a certain supernatural power, or that mere empty delusions receive a shape from our fears. For my part, I am led to believe in their existence, especially by what I hear happened to Curtius Rufus. While still in humble circumstances and obscure, he was a hanger-on in the suite of the governor of Africa. While pacing the colonnade one afternoon, there appeared to him a female form of superhuman size and beauty. She informed the terrified man that she was Africa, and had come to foretell future events, for that he would go to Rome, would fill offices of state there, and would even return to that same province with the highest powers, and die in it. All which things were fulfilled. Moreover, as he touched at Carthage, and was disembarking from his ship, the same form is said to have presented itself to him on the shore. It is certain that, being seized with illness, and auguring the future from the past and misfortune from his previous prosperity. He himself abandoned all hope of life, though none of those about him despaired. Is not the following story again still more appalling and not less marvellous? I will relate it as it was received by me. There was at Athens a mansion, spacious and commodious, but of evil repute and dangerous to health. In the dead of night there was a noise as of iron, and, if you listened more closely, 
a clanking of chains was heard, first of all from a distance, and afterwards hard by. Presently a spectre used to appear, an ancient man, sinking with emaciation and squalor, with a long beard and bristly hair, wearing shackles on his legs and fetters on his hands, and shaking them. Hence the inmates, by reason of their fears, passed miserable and horrible nights in sleeplessness. This want of sleep was followed by disease, and, their terrors increasing, by death, for in the daytime as well, though the apparition had departed, yet a reminiscence of it flitted before their eyes, and their dread outlived its cause. The mansion was accordingly deserted, and, condemned to solitude, was entirely abandoned to the dreadful ghost. However, it was advertised, on the chance of someone, ignorant of the fearful curse attached to it, being willing to buy or rent it. Athenodorus, the philosopher, came to Athens and read the advertisement. When he had been informed of the terms, which were so low as to appear suspicious, he made inquiries and learned the whole of the particulars. Yet none the less on that account, nay, all the more readily, did he rent the house. As evening began to draw on, he ordered a sofa to be set for himself in the front part of the house, and called for his notebooks, writing implements, and a light. The whole of his servants he dismissed to the interior apartments, and for himself applied his soul, eyes, and hands to composition, that his mind might not, from want of occupation, picture to itself the phantoms of which he had heard, or any empty terrors. At the commencement there was the universal silence of night. Soon the shaking of irons and the clanking of chains was heard, yet he never raised his eyes nor slackened his pen, but hardened his soul and deadened his ears by its help. The noise grew and approached. Now it seemed to be heard at the door, and next inside the door. He looked round, beheld and recognized the figure he had been told of. It was standing and signaling to him with its finger, as though inviting him. He, in reply, made a sign with his hand that it should wait a moment, and applied himself afresh to his tablets and pen. Upon this the figure kept rattling its chains over his head as he wrote. On looking round again, he saw it making the same signal as before, and without delay took up a light and followed it. It moved with a slow step, as though oppressed by its chains, and, after turning into the courtyard of the house, vanished suddenly and left his company. On being thus left to himself, he marked the spot with some grass and leaves which he plucked. Next day he applied to the magistrates, and urged them to have the spot in question dug up. There were found there some bones attached to and intermingled with fetters. The body to which they had belonged, rotted away by time and soil, had abandoned them thus naked and corroded to the chains. They were collected and interred at the public expense, and the house was ever afterwards free from the spirit, which had obtained due sepulture. The above story I believe on the strength of those who affirm it. What follows, I am myself in a position to affirm to others. I have a freedman, who is not without some knowledge of letters. A younger brother of his was sleeping with him in the same bed. The latter dreamed he saw some one sitting on the couch, who approached a pair of scissors to his head, and even cut the hair from the crown of it. 
when day dawned he was found to be cropped round the crown and his locks were discovered lying about a very short time afterwards a fresh occurrence of the same kind confirmed the truth of the former one a lad of mine was sleeping in company with several others in the page's apartment there came through the windows so he tells the story two figures in white tunics who cut his hair as he lay and departed the way they came in his case too daylight exhibited him shorn and his locks scattered around nothing remarkable followed except perhaps this that i was not brought under accusation as i should have been if domitian in whose reign these events happened had lived longer for in his desk was found an information against me which had been presented by Carus, from which circumstance it may be conjectured inasmuch as it is the custom of accused persons to let their hair grow that the cutting off of my slave's hair was a sign of the danger which threatened me being averted i beg then that you will apply your great learning to this subject the matter is one which deserves long and deep consideration on your part nor am i for my part undeserving of having the fruits of your wisdom imparted to me you may even argue on both sides as your way is provided you argue more forcibly on one side than the other so as not to dismiss me in suspense and anxiety when the very cause of my consulting you has been to have my doubts put an end to end of letter to sura by pliny the younger this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information and to find out how you can volunteer please visit librivox.org the mystery of the semi-detached by e nesbit recorded by adrian pretzelis he was waiting for her he had been waiting an hour and a half in a dusty suburban lane with a row of big elms on one side and some eligible building sites on the other and far away to the southwest the twinkling yellow lights of the crystal palace it was not quite like a country lane for it had a pavement and lamp posts but it was not a bad place for a meeting all the same and farther up toward the cemetery it was really quite rural and almost pretty especially in twilight but twilight had long deepened into the night and still he waited he loved her and he was engaged to be married to her with the complete disapproval of every reasonable person who had been consulted and this half clandestine meeting was to-night to take the place of the grudgingly sanctioned weekly interview because a certain rich uncle was visiting at her house and her mother was not the woman to acknowledge to a moneyed uncle who might go off any day a match so deeply ineligible as hers with him so he waited for her and the chill of an unusually severe may evening entered into his bones the policeman passed him with a surly response to his good night the bicyclists went by him like grey ghosts with fog-horns, and it was nearly ten o'clock, and she had not come. He shrugged his shoulders and turned toward his lodgings. His road led him by her house, 
desirable, commodious, semi-detached, and he walked slowly as he neared it. She might even now be coming out, but she was not. There was no sign of movement about the house, no sign of life, no lights even in the windows, and her people were not early people. He paused by the gate, wondering. Then he noticed that the front door was open, wide open, and the street lamp shone a little way into the dark hall. There was something about all this that did not please him, that scared him a little indeed. The house had a gloomy and deserted air. It was obviously impossible that it harboured a rich uncle. The old man must have left early, in which case... He walked up the path of patent glazed tiles and listened. No sign of life. He passed into the hall. There was no light anywhere. Where was everybody and why was the front door open? There was no one in the drawing-room, and the dining-room and the study, nine feet by seven, were equally blank. Everybody was out, evidently, but the unpleasant sense that he was perhaps not the first casual visitor to walk through that open door impelled him to look through the house before he went away and close it after him. So he went upstairs, and at the door of the first bedroom he came to, he struck a wax match, as he had done in the sitting-rooms. Even as he did so, he felt that he was not alone. And he was prepared to see something, but for what he saw he was not prepared. For what he saw lay on the bed, in a white, loose gown, and it was his sweetheart and its throat was cut from ear to ear. He doesn't know what happened then, nor how he got downstairs and into the street, but he got out somehow, and the policeman found him in a fit under the lamp-post at the corner of the street. He couldn't speak when they picked him up, and he passed the night in the police cells, because the policeman had seen plenty of drunken men before, but never one in a fit. The next morning he was better, though still very white and shaky, but the tale he told the magistrate was convincing, and they sent a couple of constables with him to her house. There was no crowd about it, as he fancied there would be, and the blinds were not down. As he stood, dazed, in front of the front door, it opened, and she came out. He held onto the doorpost for support. "'She's all right, you see,' said the constable, who had found him under the lamp. "'I told you you was drunk, but you would know best.' When he was alone with her, he told her not all, for that would not bear telling, but how he had come into the commodious semi-detached, and how he had found the door open and the lights out, and that he had been into that long back room facing the stairs, and had seen something— in even trying to hint at which he turned sick and broke down, and had to have brandy given him. "'But, my dearest,' she said, "'I dare say the house was dark, for we were all at the Crystal Palace with my uncle, and no doubt the door was open, for the maids will run out if they're left. But you could not have been in that room, because I locked it when I came away, and the key was in my pocket. I dressed in a hurry.' and left all my odds and ends lying about. 
I know, he said. I saw a green scarf on a chair, and some long brown gloves, and a lot of hairpins and ribbons and a prayer book, and a lace handkerchief on the dressing table. Why, I even noticed the almanac on the mantelpiece. Twenty-one October. At least, it couldn't be that, because this is May, and yet it was. Your almanac is at twenty-one October, isn't it? No, of course it isn't, she said, smiling rather anxiously. But all the other things were just as you say. You must have had a, a dream or a vision or something. He was a very ordinary, commonplace, city young man, and he didn't believe in visions. But he never rested day or night till he got his sweetheart and her mother away from that commodious semi-detached, and settled them in a quiet, distant suburb. In the course of the removal he incidentally married her, and the mother went on living with them. His nerves must have been a good bit shaken, because he was very queer for a long time, and was always inquiring if any one had taken the desirable semi-detached. And when an old stockbroker with a family took it, he went the length of calling on the old gentleman and imploring him by all that he held dear not to live in that fatal house. Why? said the stockbroker, not unnaturally. And then he got so vague and confused, trying to tell why and trying not to tell why, that the stockbroker showed him out and thanked his God that he was not such a fool as to allow a lunatic to stand in the way of his taking that remarkably cheap and desirable semi-detached residence. Now the curious and quite inexplicable part of this story is that when she came down to breakfast on the morning of the 22nd of October, she found him looking like death, with the morning paper in his hand. He caught hers, he couldn't speak, and pointed to the paper. And there she read that on the night of the 21st a young lady, the stockbroker's daughter, had been found with her throat cut from ear to ear on the bed in the long back bedroom facing the stairs of that desirable semi-detached. End of The Mystery of the Semi-Detached by E. Nesbitt This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Signalman by Charles Dickens Read by Howard Dratch Hello, below there. When he heard a voice thus calling to him, he was standing at the door of his box, with a flag in his hand, thrilled round its short pole. One would have thought, considering the nature of the ground, that he could not have doubted from what quarter the voice came. But instead of looking up to where I stood on the top of the steep cutting nearly over his head, he turned himself about and looked down the line. There was something remarkable in his manner of doing so, though I could not have said for my life what. 
but I know it was remarkable enough to attract my notice, even though his figure was foreshortened and shadowed down in the deep trench, and mine was high above him, so steeped in the glow of an angry sunset that I had shaded my eyes with my hand before I saw him at all. Hello, below! From looking down the line, he turned himself about again, and raising his eyes, saw my figure high above him. Is there any path by which I can come down and speak to you? He looked up at me without replying, and I looked down at him without pressing him too soon with the repetition of my idle question. Just then there came a vague vibration in the earth and air, quickly changing into a violent pulsation, and an oncoming rush that caused me to start back, as though it had force to draw me down. When such vapor as rose to my height from the rapid train had passed me, and was skimming away over the landscape, I looked down again and saw him refurling the flag he had shown while the train went by. I repeated my inquiry. After a pause, during which he seemed to regard me with fixed attention, he motioned with his rolled-up flag towards a point on my level, some two or three hundred yards distant. I called him all right, and made for that point. There, by dint of looking closely about me, I found a rough zigzag descending path notched out, which I followed. The cutting was extremely deep and unusually precipitate. It was made through a clammy stone that became oozier and wetter as I went down. For these reasons, I found the way long enough to give me time to recall a singular air of reluctance or compulsion with which he had pointed out the path. When I came down low enough upon the zigzag descent to see him again, I saw that he was standing between the rails on the way by which the train had lately passed, in an attitude as if he were waiting for me to appear. He had his left hand at his chin, and that left elbow rested on his right hand, crossed over his breast. His attitude was one of such expectation and watchfulness that I stopped a moment, wondering at it. I resumed my downward way, and stepping out upon the level of the railroad and drawing near to him, saw that he was a dark, sallow man, with a dark beard and rather heavy eyebrows. His post when it was in as solitary and dismal a place as ever I saw. On either side, a dripping wet wall of jagged stone, excluding all view but a strip of sky. The perspective one way, only a crooked prolongation of this great dungeon. The shorter perspective in the other direction, terminating in a gloomy red light, and the gloomier entrance to a black tunnel, in whose massive architecture there was a barbarous, depressing, and forbidding air. So little sunlight ever found its way to this spot, that it had an earthy, deadly smell, and so much cold wind rushed through it that it struck chill to me as if I had left the natural world. Before he stirred, I was near enough to him to have touched him, not even then removing his eyes from mine, he stepped back one step and lifted his hand. This was a lonesome post to occupy, I said, and it had riveted my attention when I looked down from up yonder. A visitor was a rarity, I should suppose, not an unwelcome rarity, I hoped. In me, he merely saw a man who had been shut up within narrow limits all his life, and who, being at last set free, had a newly awakened interest in these great works. 
To such purpose I spoke to him, but I am far from sure of the terms I used, for besides that I am not happy in opening any conversation, there was something in the man that daunted me. He directed a most curious look towards the red light near the tunnel's mouth and looked all about as if something were missing from it, and then looked at me. That light was part of his charge, was it not? He answered in a low voice, Don't you know it is? The monstrous thought came into my mind as I perused the fixed eyes and the saturnine face that this was a spirit, not a man. I have speculated since whether there may have been infection in his mind. In my turn, I stepped back, but in making the action, I detected in his eyes some latent fear of me. This put the monstrous thought to flight. You look at me, I said, forcing a smile as if you had a dread of me. I was doubtful, he returned, whether I had seen you before. Where? He pointed to the red light he had looked at. There, I said. Intently watchful of me, he replied, but without sound, yes. My good fellow, what should I do there? However, be that as it may, I never was there, you may swear. I think I may, he rejoined. Yes, I am sure I may. His manner cleared like my own. He replied to my remarks with readiness and in well-chosen words. Had he much to do there? Yes, that was to say he had enough responsibility to bear, but exactness and watchfulness was what was required of him, and of actual work, manual labor, he had next to none. To change that signal, to trim those lights, and to turn this iron handle now and then was all he had to do under that head. Regarding those many long and lonely hours of which I seemed to make so much, he could only say that the routine of his life had shaped itself into that form, and he had grown used to it. He had taught himself a language down here, if only to know it by sight, and to have formed his own crude ideas of its pronunciation could be called learning it. He had also worked at fractions and decimals, and tried little algebra, but he was, and had been as a boy, a poor hand at figures. Was it necessary for him, when on duty, always to remain in that channel of damp air, and could he never rise into the sunshine between those high stone walls? Why, that depended upon times and circumstances. Under some conditions there would be less upon the line than under others, and the same held good as to certain hours of the day and night. In bright weather, he did choose occasions for getting a little above these lower shadows, but being at all times liable to be called by his electric bell, and at such times listening for it with redoubled anxiety, the relief was less than I would suppose. He took me into his box, where there was a fire, a desk for an official book in which he had to make certain entries, a telegraphic instrument with its dial, face, and needles, and the little bell of which he had spoken. On my trusting that he would excuse the remark that he had been well educated, and, I hoped, might say, without offence, perhaps educated above that station, he observed that instances of slight incongruity in such wise would rarely be found wanting among large bodies of men, that he had heard it was so in workhouses and the police force, even in that last desperate resource, the army, and that he knew it was so, more or less, in any great railway staff. He had been, when young, if I could believe it, sitting in that hut, he scarcely could, a student of natural philosophy, and had attended lectures, but he had run wild, 
misused his opportunities, gone down and never risen again. He had no complaint to offer about that. He had made his bed and he lay upon it. It was far too late to make another. All that I have here condensed, he said in a quiet manner, with his grave, dark regards divided between me and the fire. He threw in the word, sir, from time to time, and especially when he referred to his youth, as though to request me to understand that he claimed to be nothing but what I found him. He was several times interrupted by the little bell, and had to read off messages and send replies. Once he had to stand without the door and display a flag as a train passed, and make some verbal communication to the driver. In the discharge of his duties, I observed him to be remarkably exact and vigilant, breaking off his discourse at a syllable, and remaining silent until what he had to do was done. In a word, I should have set this man down as one of the safest of men to be employed in that capacity, but for the circumstance that while he was speaking to me, he twice broke off with a fallen color, turned his face toward the little bell when it did not ring, opened the door of his hut, which was kept shut to exclude the unhealthy damp, and looked out towards the red light near the mouth of the tunnel. On both of those occasions, he came back to the fire with the inexplicable air upon him, which I had remarked without being able to define when we were so far asunder. Said I, when I rose to leave him, you almost make me think that I have met with a contented man. I am afraid I must acknowledge that I said it to lead him on. I believe I used to be so, he rejoined, in the low voice in which he had first spoken. But I am troubled, sir, I am troubled. He would have recalled the words if he could. He had said them, however, and I took them up quickly. With what? What is your trouble? It is very difficult to impart, sir. It is very, di very difficult to speak of. If ever you make me another visit, I will try to tell you but I expressly intend to make you another visit. Say, when shall it be? I go off early in the morning, and I shall be on again at ten tomorrow night, sir. I will come at eleven. He thanked me and went out at the door with me. I'll show my white light, sir, he said in his peculiar low voice, till you have found the way up. When you have found it, don't call out, and when you are at the top, don't call out. His manner seemed to make the place strike colder to me, but I said no more than very well. And when you come down tomorrow night, don't call out. Let me ask you a parting question. What made you cry, hello, below there, tonight? Heaven knows, said I. I cried something to that effect. Not to that effect, sir. Those were the very words. I know them well. I admit those were the very words. I said them, no doubt, because I saw you below. For no other reason? What other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that they were conveyed to you in any supernatural way? No. He wished me good night and held up his light. I walked by the side of the down line of rails with a very disagreeable sensation of a train coming behind me until I found the path. It was easier to mount than to descend, and I got back to my inn without any adventure. Punctual to my appointment, I placed my foot on the first notch of the zigzag next night, as the distant clocks were striking eleven. He was waiting for me at the bottom with his white light on. I have not called out, I said, when we came close together. May I speak now? By all means, sir. Good night, then, and here's my hand. Good night, sir, and here's mine. With that, we walked side by side to his box, entered it, closed the door, and sat down by the fire. 
I've made up my mind, sir, he began, bending forward as soon as we were seated, and speaking in a tone but a little above a whisper, that you shall not have to ask me twice what troubles me. I took you for someone else yesterday evening. That troubles me. That mistake? No, that's someone else. Who is it? I don't know. Like me? I don't know. I never saw the face. The left arm is across the face, and the right arm is waved, violently waved, this way. I followed his action with my eyes, and it was the action of an arm gesticulating with the utmost passion and vehemence. For God's sake, clear the way. One moonlight night, said the man, I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry, Hello, below there. I started up, looked from that door, and saw this someone else standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving as I just now showed you. The voice seemed hoarse with shouting, and it cried, Look out, look out! And then again, Hello, below there, look out! I caught up my lamp, turned it on red, and ran towards the figure, calling, What's wrong? What has happened? Where? It stood just outside the blackness of the tunnel. I advanced so close upon it that I wondered at its keeping the sleeve across its eyes. I ran right up at it and had my hand stretched out to pull the sleeve away when it was gone. Into the tunnel, said I. No, I ran on into the tunnel, five hundred yards. I stopped and held my lamp above my head and saw the figures of the measured distance and saw the wet stains stealing down the walls and trickling through the arch. I ran out again faster than I had run in, for I had a mortal abhorrence of the place upon me, and I looked all round the red light with my own red light, and I went up the iron ladder to the gallery atop of it, and I came down again and ran back here. I telegraphed both ways. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? The answer came back both ways. All well. Resisting the slow touch of a frozen finger tracing out my spine, I showed him how that this figure must be a deception of his sense of sight and how that figures, originating in disease of the delicate nerves that minister the functions of the eye, were known to have often troubled patients, some of whom be had become conscious of the nature of their affliction, and had even proved it by experiments upon themselves. As to an imaginary cry, said I, do but listen for a moment to the wind in this unnatural valley while we speak so low, and to the wild harp it makes of the telegraph wires. That was all very well, he returned, after we had sat listening for a while, and he ought to know something of the wind and the wires, he who so often passed long winter nights there alone and watching, but he would beg to remark that he had not finished. I asked his pardon, and he slowly added these words, touching my arm. Within six hours after the appearance, the memorable accident on this line happened and within ten hours the dead and wounded were brought along through the tunnel over the spot where the figure had stood. A disagreeable shudder crept over me, but I did my best against it. It was not to be denied, I rejoined, that this was a remarkable coincidence, calculated deeply to impress his mind, but it was unquestionable that remarkable coincidences did continually occur, and they must be taken into account when dealing with such a subject." though to be sure I must admit, I added, for I thought I saw that he was going to bring the objection to bear upon me, men of common sense did not allow much for coincidences in making the ordinary calculations of life. He again begged to remark that he had not finished. I again begged his pardon for being betrayed into interruptions. 
this he said again laying his hand upon my arm and glancing over his shoulder with yellow eyes was just a year ago six or seven months passed and i had recovered from the surprise and shock when one morning as the day was breaking i standing at the door looked toward the red light and saw the spectre again he stopped with a fixed look at me did it cry out no it was silent did it wave its arm no it leaned against the shaft of the light with both hands before its face like this once more i followed his action with my eyes it was an action of mourning i have seen such an attitude in stone figures on tombs did you go up to it i came in and sat down partly to collect my thoughts partly because it had turned me faint when i went to the door again daylight was above and the ghost was gone but nothing followed nothing came of this he touched me on the arm with his forefinger twice or thrice, giving a ghastly nod each time. That very day, as the train came out of the tunnel, I noticed at a carriage window on my side what looked like a confusion of hands and heads, and something waved. I saw it just in time to signal the driver, stop. He shut off and put his brake on, but the train drifted past here a hundred and fifty yards or more. I ran after it, and as I went along, heard terrible screams and cries. A beautiful young lady had died instantaneously in one of the compartments, and was brought to here, and laid down on this floor between us. Involuntarily, I pushed my chair back as I looked from the boards at which he pointed to himself. True, sir, true, precisely as it happened, so I tell it you. I could think of nothing to say to any purpose, and my mouth was very dry. The wind and the wires took up the story with a long, lamenting wail. He resumed, Now, sir, mark this, and judge how my mind is troubled. The spectre came back a week ago. Ever since it has been there, now and again, by fits and starts. At the light? At the danger light. What does it seem to do? He repeated, if possible, with increased passion and vehemence, that former gesticulation of, For God's sakes, clear the way. Then he went on, I have no peace or rest from it. It calls to me for many minutes together in an agonized manner. Below there, look out, look out. It stands waving to me. It rings my little bell. I caught at that. Did it ring your bell yesterday evening when I was here and you went to the door? Twice. Why, see, said I, how your imagination misleads you. My eyes were on the bell and my ears were open to the bell. And if I am a living man, it did not ring at those times. No, nor at any other time, except when it was rung in the natural course of physical things by the station communicating with you. He shook his head. I have never made a mistake as to that yet, sir. I have never confused the specter's ring with the man's. The ghost's ring is a strange vibration in the bell that it derives from nothing else, and I have not asserted that the bell stirs to the eye. I don't wonder that you failed to hear it, but I heard it. And did the spectre seem to be there when you looked out? It was there. Both times? He repeated firmly, both times. Will you come to the door with me and look for it now? He bit his underlip, as though he were somewhat unwilling, but arose. I opened the door and stood on the step while he stood in the doorway. There was the danger light. There was the dismal mouth of the tunnel. There were the high, wet stone walls of the cutting. There were the stars above them. Do you see it? I asked him, taking particular note of his face. 
His eyes were prominent and strained, but not very much more so, perhaps, than my own had been when I had directed them earnestly toward the same spot. No, he answered, it is not there. Agreed, said I. We went in again, shut the door, and resumed our seats. I was thinking how best to improve this advantage, if it might be called one, when he took up the conversation in such matter-of-course way, so assuming that there could be no serious question of fact between us, that I felt myself placed in the weakest of positions. By this time you will fully understand, sir, he said, that what troubles me so dreadfully is the question, what does the specter mean? I was not sure, I told him, that I did fully understand. What is its warning against, he said, ruminating with his eyes on the fire and only by times turning them on me. What is the danger? Where is the danger? There is danger overhanging somewhere on this line. Some dreadful calamity will happen. It is not to be doubted this third time after what has gone before. But surely this is a cruel haunting of me. What can I do? He pulled out his handkerchief and wiped the drops from his heated forehead. If I telegraphed danger on either side of me or on both, I can give no reason for it, he went on, wiping the palms of his hands. I should get into trouble and do no good. They would think I was mad. This is the way it would work. Message, danger, take care, answer. What danger? Where? Message, don't know, but for God's sake, take care. They would displace me. What else could they do? His pain of mind was most pitiable to see. It was the mental torture of a conscientious man, oppressed beyond endurance by an unintelligible responsibility involving life. When it first stood under the danger light, he went on, putting his dark hair back from his head and drawing his hands outward across and across his temples in an extremity of feverish distress. Why not tell me where that accident was to happen, if it must happen? Why not tell me how it could be averted, if it could have been averted? When on its second coming it hid its face, why not tell me instead, she's going to die, let them keep her at home? If it came on those two occasions only to show me that its warnings were true, and so to prepare me for the third, why not warn me plainly now? And I, Lord, help me, a mere poor signalman on this solitary station, why not go to somebody with credit to be believed and power to act? When I saw him in this state, I saw that for the poor man's sake, as well as for the public safety, what I had to do for the time was to compose his mind. Therefore, setting aside all question of reality or unreality between us, I represented to him that whoever thoroughly discharged his duty must do well, and that at least it was his comfort that he understood his duty though he did not understand these confounding appearances. In this effort I succeeded far better than in the attempt to reason him out of his conviction. He became calm. The occupations incidental to his post as the night advanced began to make larger demands on his attention, and I left him at two in the morning. I had offered to stay through the night, but he would not hear of it. That I more than once looked back at the red light as I ascended the pathway, that I did not like the red light, and that I should have slept but poorly if my bed had been under it, I see no reason to conceal, nor did I like the two sequences of the accident and the dead girl. I see no reason to conceal that either. But what ran most in my thoughts was the consideration how ought I to act, having become the recipient of this disclosure. I had proved the man to be intelligent, vigilant, painstaking, and exact, 
but how long might he remain so in his state of mind? Though in a subordinate position, still he held a most important trust, and would I, for instance, like to stake my own life on the chances of his continuing to execute it with precision? Unable to overcome a feeling that there would be something treacherous in my communicating what he had told me to his superiors in the company, without first being plain with himself and proposing a middle course to him, I ultimately resolved to offer to accompany him, otherwise keeping his secret for the present, to the wisest medical practitioner we could hear of in those parts, and to take his opinion. A change in his time of duty would come round next night, he had apprised me, and he would be off an hour or two after sunrise, and on again soon after sunset. I had appointed to return accordingly. Next evening was a lovely evening, and I walked out early to enjoy it. The sun was not yet quite down when I traversed the field path near the top of the deep cutting. I would extend my walk for an hour, I said to myself, half an hour on and half an hour back, and it would then be time to go to my signalman's box. Before pursuing my stroll, I stepped to the brink and mechanically looked down from the point from which I had first seen him. I cannot describe the thrill that seized upon me when close at the mouth of the tunnel I saw the appearance of a man with his left sleeve across his eyes, passionately waving his right arm. The nameless horror that oppressed me passed in a moment, for in a moment I saw that this appearance of a man was a man indeed, and that there was a little group of other men standing at a short distance to whom he seemed to be rehearsing the gesture he made. The danger light was not yet lighted. Against its shaft, a little low hut, entirely new to me, had been made of some wooden supports and tarpaulin. It looked no bigger than a bed. With an irresistible sense that something was wrong, with a flashing self-reproachful fear that fatal mischief had come of my leaving the man there, and causing no one to be sent to overlook or correct what he did, I descended the notched path with all the speed I could make. "'What's the matter?' I asked the men. "'Signalman killed this morning, sir.' "'Not the man belonging to that box?' "'Yes, sir. "'Not the man I know.' "'You will recognize him, sir, if you knew him,' said the man who spoke for the others, solemnly uncovering his own head and raising the end of the tarpaulin, for his face is quite composed. Well, "'How did this happen? How did this happen?' I asked, turning from one to another as the hut closed in again. He was cut down by an engine, sir. No man in England knew his work better, but somehow he was not clear of the outer rail. It was just at broad day. He had struck the light and had the lamp in his hand. As the engine came out of the tunnel, his back was towards her, and she cut him down. That man drove her, and was showing how it happened. Show the gentleman, Tom. The man who wore a rough, dark dress stepped back to his former place at the mouth of the tunnel. Coming round the curve in the tunnel, sir, he said, I saw him at the end, like as if I saw him down a perspective glass. There was no time to check speed, and I knew I'd be very careful. As he didn't seem to take heed of the whistle, I shut it off when we were running down upon him and called to him as loud as I could call. What did you say? I said, below there, look out, look out, for God's sake, clear the way. I started. Ah, it was a dreadful time, sir. I never left off calling to him. I put this arm before my eyes not to see, and I waved this arm to the last, but it was no use. 
without prolonging the narrative to dwell on any one of its curious circumstances more than on any other, I may, in closing it, point out the coincidence that the warning of the engine driver included not only the words which the unfortunate signalman had repeated to me as haunting him, but also the words which I myself, not he, had attached, and that only in my own mind to the gesticulation he had imitated. End of story, The Signalman, by Charles Dickens, read for LibriVox.org, by Howard Adratch. The Silver Mirror, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Silver Mirror by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle January 3 This affair of White and Wotherspoon's accounts proves to be a gigantic task. There are twenty thick ledgers to be examined and checked. Who would be a junior partner? However, it is the first big bit of business which has been left entirely in my hands. I must justify it but it has to be finished so that the lawyers may have the result in time for the trial. Johnson said this morning that I should have to get the last figure out before the twentieth of the month. Good Lord! Well, have at it, and if human brain and nerve can stand the strain, I'll win out the other side. It means office work from ten to five, and then a second sitting from about eight to one in the morning. There's drama in an accountant's life. When I find myself in the still early hours while all the world sleeps, hunting through column after column for those missing figures, which will turn a respected alderman into a felon, I understand that it is not such a prosaic profession, after all. On Monday I came on the first trace of defalcation. No heavy game hunter ever got a finer thrill when he first caught sight of the trail of his quarry. But I look at the twenty ledgers and think of the jungle, through which I have to follow him before I get my kill. Hard work, but rare sport too, in a way. I saw the fat fellow once at a city dinner, his red face glowing above a white napkin. He looked at the little pale man at the end of the table. He would have been pale, too, if he could have seen the task that would be mine. January 6. What a perfect nonsense it is for doctors to prescribe rest when rest is out of the question. Asses. They might as well shout to a man who has a pack of wolves at his heels that what he wants is absolute quiet. My figures must be out by a certain date. Unless they are so I shall lose the chance of my lifetime. So how on earth am I to rest? I'll take a week or so after the trial. Perhaps I was a fool to go to the doctor at all, but I get nervous and highly strung when I sit alone at my work at night. It's not a pain, only a sort of fullness of the head with an occasional mist over the eyes. I thought perhaps some bromide, or chloral, or something of the kind might do me good. But stop work? It's absurd to ask such a thing. It's like a long-distance race. You feel queer at first, and your heart thumps, and your lungs pant. But if you have only the pluck to keep on, you get your second wind. I'll stick to my work and wait for my second wind. If it never comes, all the same, I'll stick to my work. Two ledgers are done, and I am well in the third. The rascal has covered his tracks well, but I picked them up for all that. January 9. I had not meant to go to the doctor again, and yet I have had to. Straining my nerves, risking a complete breakdown, even endangering my sanity. That's a nice sentence to have fired off at one. Well, I'll stand the strain, and I'll take the risk. But so long as I can sit in my chair and move a pen, I'll follow the old sinner's slot. 
By the way, I may as well set down here the queer experience which drove me the second time to the doctor. I'll keep an exact record of my symptoms and sensations, because they are interesting in themselves. A curious psychophysiological study, said the doctor, and also because I am perfectly certain that when I am through with them, they will all seem blurred and unreal, like some queer dream betwixt sleeping and waking. So now, while they are fresh, I will just make a note of them, if only as a change of thought after the endless figures. There is an old silver-framed mirror in my room. It was given me by a friend who had taste for antiquities, and he, as I happen to know, picked it up at a sale and had no notion where it came from. It's a large thing, three feet across and two feet high, and it leans at the back of a side table on my left as I write. The frame is flat, about three inches across, and very old, far too old for hallmarks or other methods of determining its age. The glass part projects with a beveled edge, and has the magnificent reflecting power which is only, as it seems to me, to be found in very old mirrors. There's a feeling of perspective when you look into it, such as no modern glass can ever give. The mirror is so situated that as I sit at the table I can usually see nothing in it but the reflection of the red window curtains. But a queer thing happened last night. I had been working for some hours, very much against the grain, with continual bouts of that mistiness of which I have complained. Again and again I had to stop and clear my eyes. Well, on one of these occasions, I chanced to look at the mirror. It had the oddest appearance. The red curtains, which should have been reflected in it, were no longer there, but the glass seemed to be clouded and steamy, not on the surface, which glittered like steel, but deep down in the very grain of it. This opacity, when I stared hard at it, appeared to slowly rotate this way and that, until it was a thick white cloud swirling in heavy wreaths. So real and solid was it, and so reasonable was I, that I remember turning, with the idea that the curtains were on fire. But everything was deadly still in the room. No sound save the ticking of the clock, no movement save the slow gyration of that strange woolly cloud deep in the heart of the old mirror. Then, as I looked, the mist, or smoke, or cloud, or whatever one may call it, seemed to coalesce and solidify at two points quite close together, and I was aware, with a thrill of interest rather than of fear, that these were two eyes looking out into the room. A vague outline of a head I could see, a woman's by the hair, but this was very shadowy. Only the eyes were quite distinct, such eyes, dark, luminous, filled with some passionate emotion, fear or horror, I could not say which. Never have I seen such eyes which were so full of intense, vivid life. They were not fixed upon me, but stared out into the room. Then, as I sat erect, passed my hand over my brow, and made a strong, conscious effort to pull myself together, the dim head faded into the general opacity, the mirror slowly cleared, and there were the red curtains once again. A skeptic would say, no doubt, that I had dropped asleep over my figures, and that my experience was a dream. As a matter of fact, I was never more vividly awake in my life. I was able to argue about it, even as I looked at it, and to tell myself that it was a subjective impression, a chimera of a nerves, begotten by worry and insomnia. But why this particular shape? And who is the woman, and what is the dreadful emotion which I read in those wonderful brown eyes? They come between me and my work. For the first time I have done less than the daily tally which I had marked out. Perhaps that is why I have no abnormal sensations tonight. Tomorrow I must wake up, come what may. January 11. All well, and good progress with my work. I wind the net, coil after coil, round that bulky body. But the last smile may remain with him if my own nerves break over it. 
The mirror would seem to be a sort of barometer which marks my brain pressure. Each night I have observed that it had clouded before I reached the end of my task. Dr. Sinclair, who is, it seems, a bit of a psychologist, was so interested in my account that he came round this evening to have a look at the mirror. I had observed that something was scribbled in crabbed old characters upon the metalwork at the back. He examined this with a lens, but could make nothing of it. Sank ex pal was his first reading of it, but that did not bring us any further. He advised me to put it away into another room, but after all, whatever I may see in it is, by his own account, only a symptom. It is in the cause that the danger lies. The twenty ledgers, not the silver mirror, should be packed away if I could only do it. I'm at the eighth now, so I progress. January 13. Perhaps it would have been wiser after all if I had packed away the mirror. I had an extraordinary experience with it last night, and yet I find it so interesting, so fascinating, that even now I will keep it in its place. What on earth is the meaning of it all? I suppose it was about one in the morning, and I was closing my books preparatory to staggering off the bed, when I saw her there in front of me. The stage of mistiness and development must have passed unobserved, and there she was in all her beauty and passion and distress, as clear-cut as if she were really in the flesh before me. The figure was small, but very distinct, so much so that every feature, and even every detail of dress, is stamped in my memory. She is seated on the extreme left of the mirror. A sort of shadowy figure crouches down beside her. I can dimly discern that it is a man, and then behind them is a cloud in which I see figures, figures which move. It is not a mere picture upon which I look. It is a scene in life, an actual episode. She crouches and quivers. The man beside her cowers down. The vague figures make abrupt movements and gestures. All my fears were swallowed up in my interest. It was maddening to see so much and not to see more. But I can at least describe the woman to the smallest point. She is very beautiful and quite young. Not more than five and twenty, I should judge. Her hair is of a very rich brown, with a warm chestnut shade fining into gold at the edges. A little flat-pointed cap comes to an angle in front, and is made of lace edged with pearls. The forehead is high, too high, perhaps, for a perfect beauty, but one would not have it otherwise, as it gives a touch of power and strength to what would have otherwise been a softly feminine face. The brows are most delicately curved, over heavy eyelids, and then come those wonderful eyes, so large, so dark, so full of overmastering emotion, of rage, of horror, contending with a pride of self-control which holds her from sheer frenzy. The cheeks are pale, the lips white with agony, the chin and throat most exquisitely rounded. The figure sits and leans forward in the chair, straining and rigid, cataleptic with horror. The dress is black velvet, a jewel gleams like a flame in the breast, and a golden crucifix smolders in the shadow of a fold. This is the lady whose image still lives in the old silver mirror. What dire deed could it be which has left its impress there, so that now, in another age, if the spirit of a man be but attuned to it, he may be conscious of its presence? One other detail. Down on the left side of the skirt of the black dress was what I thought at first was a shapely bunch of white ribbon. Then, as I looked more intently, or as the vision defined itself more clearly, I perceived what it was. It was the hand of a man clinched and knotted in agony, which held on with a convulsive grasp to the fold of the dress. The rest of the crouching figure was a mere vague outline, but that strenuous hand shone clear in the dark background, with a sinister suggestion of tragedy in its frantic clutch. The man is frightened, horribly frightened. That I can clearly discern. 
What has terrified him so? Why does he grip the woman's dress? The answer lies amongst those moving figures in the background. They have brought danger both to him and to her. The interest of the thing fascinated me. I thought no more of its relation to my own nerves, but I stared and stared as if in a theater. But I could get no further. The mist thinned. There were tumultuous movements in which all the figures were vaguely concerned. Then the mirror was clear once more. The doctor says I must drop work for a day, and I can afford to do so, for I have made good progress lately. It is quite evident that the visions depend entirely upon my own nervous state, for I sat in front of the mirror for an hour tonight no result whatever. My soothing day has chased them away. I wonder whether I shall ever penetrate what they all mean. I examined the mirror this evening under a good light, and besides the mysterious inscription, Sank X Pal, I was able to discern some signs or heraldic marks, very faintly visible upon the silver. They must be very ancient, as they are almost obliterated. So far as I could make out, there were three spearheads, two above and one below. I will show them to the doctor when he calls tomorrow. January 14. Feel perfectly well again, and I intend that nothing else shall stop me until my task is finished. The doctor was shown the marks on the mirror and agreed that they were armorial bearings. He is deeply interested in all that I have told him, and cross-questioned me closely on the details. It amuses me to notice how he is torn in two by conflicting desires. The one that his patient should lose his symptoms, the other that the medium, for so he regards me, should solve this mystery of the past. He advised continued rest, but did not oppose me too violently when I declared that such a thing was out of the question until the ten remaining ledgers have been checked. January 17. For three nights I have had no experiences. My day of rest has borne fruit. Only a quarter of my task is left, but I must make a forged march, for the lawyers are clamoring for their material. I will give them enough and to spare. I have them fast on a hundred counts. When they realize what a slippery, cunning rascal he is, I should gain some credit from the case. False trading accounts, false balance sheets, dividends drawn from capital, losses written down as profits, suppression of working expenses, manipulation of petty cash. It is a fine record. January 18. Headaches, nervous twitches, mistiness, fullness of the temples, all the premonitions of trouble, and the trouble came sure enough. And yet my real sorrow is not so much that the vision should come as that it should cease before all is revealed. But I saw more tonight. The crouching man was as visible as the lady whose gown he clutched. He is a swarthy little fellow, with a black pointed beard. He has a loose gown of damask, trimmed with fur. The prevailing tints of his dress are red. What a fright the fellow is in, to be sure. He cowers and shivers and glares back over his shoulder. There is a small knife in his other hand, but he is far too tremulous and cowed to use it. Dimly now, I begin to see the figures in the background. Fierce faces bearded and dark, shaped themselves out of the mist. There is one terrible creature, a skeleton of a man, with hollow cheeks and eyes sunk in his head. He also has a knife in his hand. On the right of the woman stands a tall man, very young with flaxen hair, his face sullen and dour. The beautiful woman looks up at him in appeal. So does the man on the ground. This youth seems to be the arbiter of their fate. The crouching man draws closer and hides himself in the woman's skirts. The tall youth bends and tries to drag her away from him. So much I saw last night before the mirror cleared. Shall I never know what it leads to and whence it comes? It is not a mere imagination of that, I am very sure. Somewhere, some time, this scene has been acted, and this old mirror has reflected it. But when? Where? January 20. 
My work draws to a close, and it is time. I feel a tenseness within my brain, a sense of intolerable strain, which warns me that something must give. I have worked myself to the limit, but tonight should be the last night. With a supreme effort, I should finish the final ledger and complete the case before I rise from my chair. I will do it. I will. February 7. I did. My God, what an experience. I hardly know if I am strong enough yet to set it down. Let me explain in the first instance that I am writing this in Dr. Sinclair's private hospital some three weeks after the last entry in my diary. On the night of January 20th, my nervous system finally gave way, and I remember nothing afterwards until I found myself, three days ago, in this home of rest. And I can rest with a good conscience. My work was done before I went under. My figures are all in the solicitor's hands. The hunt is over. And now I must describe that last night. I had sworn to finish my work, and so intently did I stick to it, though my head was bursting, that I would never look up until the last column had been added. And yet, it was fine self-restraint, for all the time I knew that wonderful things were happening in the mirror. Every nerve in my body told me so. If I looked up, there was an end of my work. So I did not look up until I was all finished. Then, when at last with throbbing temples I threw down my pen and raised my eyes, what a sight there was! The mirror and its silver frame was like a stage, brilliantly lit in which a drama was in progress. There was no mist now. The oppression of my own nerves had wrought this amazing clarity. Every feature, every movement was as clear-cut as in life. To think that I, a tired accountant, the most prosaic of mankind, with the account books of a swindling bankrupt before me, should be chosen of all the human race to look upon the scene. It was the same scene and the same figures, but the drama had advanced the stage. The tall young man was holding the woman in his arms. She strained away from him and looked up at him with loathing in her face. They had torn the crouching man away from his hold upon the skirt of her dress. A dozen of them were around him, savage men, bearded men. They hacked at him with knives. All seemed to strike him together. Their arms rose and fell. The blood did not flow from him. It squirted. His red dress was dabbled in it. He threw himself this way and that, purple upon crimson like an overripe plum. Still they hacked, and still the jets shot from him. It was horrible, horrible. They dragged him kicking to the door. The woman looked over her shoulder at him, and her mouth gaped. I heard nothing, but I knew that she was screaming. And then, whether it was this nerve-wracking vision before me, or whether my task finished, all the overwork of the past weeks came in one crushing weight upon me. The room danced round me, the floor seemed to sink away beneath my feet, and I remembered no more. In the early morning my landlady found me stretched senseless before the silver mirror, but I knew nothing myself until three days ago I woke up in deep peace of the doctor's nursing home. February 9. Only today have I told Dr. Sinclair my full experience. He had not allowed me to speak of such matters before. He listened with an absorbed interest. You don't identify this with any well-known scene in history, he asked, with suspicion in his eyes. I assured him that I knew nothing of history. Have you no idea whence that mirror came and to whom it once belonged, he continued. Have you? I asked, for he spoke with meaning. It's incredible, said he, and yet how else can one explain it? The scenes which you described before suggested it, but now it has gone beyond all range of coincidence. I will bring you some notes in the evening. Later. He has just left me. Let me set down his words as closely as I can recall them. He began by laying several musty volumes upon my bed. These you can consult at your leisure, said he. I have some notes here, which you can confirm. 
There is not a doubt that what you have seen is the murder of Rizzio by the Scottish nobles in the presence of Mary, which occurred in March 1566. Your description of the woman is accurate. The high forehead and heavy eyelids combined with great beauty could hardly apply to two women. The tall young man was her husband, Darnley. Rizzio, says the chronicle, was dressed in a loose dressing-gown of furred damask with a hose of russet velvet. With one hand he clutched Mary's gown, with the other he held a dagger. Your fierce, hollow-eyed man was Ruthven, who was new-risen from a bed of sickness. Every detail is exact. But why to me, I asked, in bewilderment, why of all the human race, to me? Because you were in the fit mental state to receive the impression, because you chanced to own the mirror which gave the impression. The mirror? You think, then, that it was Mary's mirror, that it stood in the room where this deed was done? I am convinced that it was Mary's mirror. She had been Queen of France. Her personal property would be stamped with royal arms. What you took to be three spearheads were really the lilies of France. And the inscription, Sanc ex pal, you can expand it into Sancte Crisius Palatium. Someone has made a note upon the mirror as to whence it came from. It was the palace of the Holy Cross. Holyrood, I cried. Exactly. Your mirror came from Holyrood. You have had one very singular experience and have escaped. I trust that you will never put yourself in the way of having such another. End of The Silver Mirror by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Relation of the Apparition of Mrs. Veal by Daniel Defoe The Preface This relation is matter-of-fact and attended with such circumstances as may induce any reasonable man to believe it. It was sent by a gentleman, a justice of peace, at Maidstone, in Kent, and a very intelligent person, to his friend in London, as it is here worded, which discourse is attested by a very sober and understanding gentlewoman, a kinswoman of the said gentleman's, who lives in Canterbury within a few doors of the house in which the within-named Mrs. Bargrave lives, who believes his kinswoman to be of so discerning a spirit as not to be put upon by any fallacy, and who positively assured him that the whole matter, as it is related and laid down, is really true, and what she herself had in the same words as near as may be from Mrs. Bargrave's own mouth, who, she knows, had no reason to invent and publish such a story, or any design to forge and tell a lie, being a woman of much honesty and virtue, and her whole life a course, as it were, of piety. The use which we ought to make of it is to consider that there is a life to come after this, and a just God who will retribute to every one according to the deeds done in the body, and therefore to reflect upon our past course of life we have led in the world, that our time is short and uncertain, and that if we would escape the punishment of the ungodly, and receive the reward of the righteous which is the laying hold of eternal life, we ought, for the time to come, to return to God by a speedy repentance, ceasing to do evil, and learning to do well, to seek after God early, if, happily, he may be found of us, and lead such lives for the future as may be well-pleasing in his sight. A Relation of the Apparition of Mrs. Veal 
this thing is so rare in all its circumstances and on so good authority that my reading and conversation has not given me anything like it it is fit to gratify the most ingenious and serious inquirer mrs bargrave is the person to whom mrs veal appeared after her death she is my intimate friend and i can avouch for her reputation for these last fifteen or sixteen years on my own knowledge and i can confirm the good character she had from her youth to the time of my acquaintance though since this relation she is calumniated by some people that are friends to the brother of this mrs veal who appeared who think the relation of this appearance to be a reflection and endeavour what they can to blast mrs bargrave's reputation and to laugh the story out of countenance but by the circumstances thereof and the cheerful disposition of mrs bargrave notwithstanding the ill usage of a very wicked husband there is not yet the least sign of dejection in her face nor did i ever hear her let fall a desponding or murmuring expression nay not when actually under her husband's barbarity which i have been witness to and several other persons of undoubted reputation now you must know mrs veal was a maiden gentlewoman of about thirty years of age and for some years last past had been troubled with fits which were perceived coming on her by her going off from her discourse very abruptly to some impertinence she was maintained by an only brother and kept his house in dover she was a very pious woman and her brother a very sober man to all appearance but now he does all he can to null or quash the story mrs veal was intimately acquainted with mrs bargrave from her childhood mrs veal's circumstances were then mean her father did not take care of his children as he ought so that they were exposed to hardships and mrs bargrave in those days had as unkind a father though she wanted neither food nor clothing whilst mrs veal wanted for both insomuch as she would often say mrs bargrave you are not only the best but the only friend i have in the world and no circumstance of life shall ever dissolve my friendship they would often condole each other's adverse fortunes and read together drelincourt upon death and other good books and so like two christian friends they comforted each other under their sorrow some time after mr veal's friends got him a place in the custom-house at dover which occasioned mrs veal by little and little to fall off from her intimacy with mrs bargrave though there was never any such thing as a quarrel but an indifference came on by degrees till at last mrs bargrave had not seen her in two years and a half though above twelve months of the time mrs bargrave hath been absent from dover and this last half year has been in canterbury about two months of the time dwelling in a house of her own in this house on the eighth of september seventeen o five she was sitting alone in the forenoon thinking over her unfortunate life and arguing herself into a due resignation to providence though her condition seemed hard and said she i have been provided for hitherto and doubt not but i shall be still and am well satisfied that my afflictions shall end when it is most fit for me and then took up her sewing-work which she had no sooner done but she hears a knocking at the door she went to see who was there and this proved to be mrs veal her old friend who was in a riding habit at that moment of time 
the clock struck twelve at noon. Madam, says Mrs. Bargrave, I am surprised to see you. You have been so long a stranger. But told her she was glad to see her and offered to salute her, which Mrs. Veal complied with till their lips almost touched. And then Mrs. Veal drew her hand across her own eyes and said, I am not very well, and so waved it. She told Mrs. Bargrave she was going a journey, and had a great mind to see her first. But, says Mrs. Bargrave, how came you to take journey alone? I am amazed at it, because I know you have a fond brother. Er, says Mrs. Veal, I gave my brother the slip, and came away, because I had so great a desire to see you before I took my journey. So, Mrs. Bargrave went in with her into another room within the first, and Mrs. Veal sat her down in an elbow-chair in which Mrs. Bargrave was sitting, when she heard Mrs. Veal knock. Then says Mrs. Veal, "'My dear friend, I am come to renew our old friendship again, and beg your pardon for my breach of it, and, if you can forgive me, you are the best of women.' "'Oh!' says Mrs. Bargrave, "'do not mention such a thing. I have not had an uneasy thought about it. I can easily forgive it.' "'What did you think of me?' said Mrs. Veal. "'Says Mrs. Bargrave. "'I thought you were like the rest of the world, "'and that prosperity had made you forget yourself and me.' "'Then Mrs. Veal reminded Mrs. Bargrave "'of the many friendly offices she did her in former days, "'and much of the conversation they had with each other "'in the times of their adversity, "'what books they read, and what comfort in particular "'they received from Drelincourt's Book of Death.' which was the best, she said, on that subject ever written. She also mentioned Dr. Sherlock, the two Dutch books which were translated, written upon death, and several others. But Drelincourt, she said, had the clearest notions of death, and of the future state of any who had handled that subject. Then she asked Mrs. Bargrave whether she had Drelincourt. She said, Yes, says Mrs. Veal, fetch it. And so Mrs. Bargrave goes upstairs and brings it down, says Mrs. Veal, "'Dear Mrs. Bargrave, if the eyes of our faith were as open as the eyes of our body, we should see numbers of angels about us for our guard. The notions we have of heaven now are nothing like what it is, as Drelincourt says. Therefore, be comforted under your afflictions, and believe that the Almighty has a particular regard to you, and that your afflictions are marks of God's favour, and when they have done the business they are sent for.' they shall be removed from you. And, believe me, my dear friend, believe what I say to you, one minute of future happiness will infinitely reward you for all your sufferings. For I can never believe, and claps her hand upon her knee with great earnestness, which indeed ran through most of her discourse, that ever God will suffer you to spend all your days in this afflicted state. But be assured that your afflictions shall leave you, or you them, in a short time. She spake in that pathetical and heavenly manner that Mrs. Bargrave wept several times she was so deeply affected with it. Then Mrs. Veal mentioned Dr. Kenrick's ascetic, at the end of which he gives an account of the lives of the primitive Christians. Their pattern she recommended to our imitation, and said, their conversation was not like this of our age. For now, says she, there is nothing but frothy, vain discourse, which is far different from theirs. Theirs was to edification and to build one another up in faith, 
so that they were not as we are, nor we as they were, but, says she, we ought to do as they did. There was an arty friendship among them. But where is it now to be found? says Mrs. Bargrave. It is hard indeed to find a true friend in these days, says Mrs. Veal. Mr. Norris has a fine copy of verses called Friendship in Perfection, which I wonderfully admire. Have you seen the book? says Mrs. Veal. No, says Mrs. Bargrave, but I have the verses of my own writing out. Have you? says Mrs. Veal. Then fetch them. Which she did from above stairs, and offered them to Mrs. Veal to read, who refused, and waved the thing, saying, holding down her head would make it ache, and then desired Mrs. Bargrave to read them to her, which she did. As they were admiring friendship, Mrs. Veal said, Dear Mrs. Bargrave, I shall love you for ever. In these verses there is twice used the word Elysian. Ah, says Mrs. Veal, these poets have such names for heaven. She would often draw her hand across her own eyes and say, Mrs. Bargrave, do not you think I am mightily impaired by my fits? No, says Mrs. Bargrave, I think you look as well as ever I knew you. After all this discourse, which the apparition put in much finer words than Mrs. Bargrave she could pretend to, and as much more as she can remember, for it cannot be thought that an hour and three-quarters conversation could be all retained, though the main of it she thinks she does. She said to Mrs. Bargrave she would have her write a letter to her brother and tell him. She would give him rings to such and such, and that there was a purse of gold in her cabinet, and that she would have two broad pieces given to her cousin Watson. Talking at this rate, Mrs. Bargrave thought that a fit was coming upon her, and so placed herself in a chair just before her knees to keep her from falling to the ground, if her fits should occasion it, for the elbow-chair, she thought, would keep her from falling on either side. And, to divert Mrs. Veal, as she thought, took hold of her gown-sleeve several times and commended it. Mrs. Veal told her it was a scoured silk, and newly made up. But for all this, Mrs. Veal persisted in her request, and told Mrs. Bargrave she must not deny her, and she would have her tell her brother all their conversation when she had opportunity. "'Dear Mrs. Veal,' says Mrs. Bargrave, "'this seems so impertinent that I cannot tell how to comply with it, and what a mortifying story will our conversation be to a young gentleman!' "'Why,' says Mrs. Bargrave, "'it is much better, methinks, to do it yourself.' "'No!' says Mrs. Veal. Though it seems impertinent to you now, you will see more reason for it hereafter. Mrs. Bargrave then, to satisfy her importunity, was going to fetch a pen and ink, but Mrs. Veal said, Let it alone now, but do it when I am gone, but you must be sure to do it, which was one of the last things she enjoined her at parting, and so she promised her. Then Mrs. Veal asked for Mrs. Bargrave's daughter. She said she was not at home. "'But if you've a mind to see her,' says Mrs. Bargrave, "'I'll send for her.' "'Do,' says Mrs. Veal. On which she left her and went to a neighbor's to see for her, and by the time Mrs. Bargrave was returning, Mrs. Veal was got without the door in the street in the face of the beast market on a Saturday, which is market day, and stood ready to part as soon as Mrs. Bargrave came to her. She asked her why she was in such haste. She said, She must be going, 
though perhaps she might not go her journey till Monday, and told Mrs. Bargrave she hoped she should see her again at her cousin Watson's before she went whither she was going. Then she said she would take her leave of her, and walked from Mrs. Bargrave in her view, till a turning interrupted the sight of her, which was three-quarters after one, in the afternoon. Mrs. Veal died the seventh of September, at twelve o'clock at noon, of her fits, and had not above four hours' senses before her death, in which time she received the sacrament. The next day, after Mrs. Veal's appearing, being Sunday, Mrs. Bargrave was mightily indisposed with a cold and a sore throat, that she could not go out that day. But on Monday morning she sent a person to Captain Watson's, to know if Mrs. Veal was there. They wondered at Mrs. Bargrave's inquiry, and sent her word that she was not there, nor was expected. At this answer Mrs. Bargrave told the maid she had certainly mistook the name, or made some blunder. And though she was ill, she put on her hood and went herself to Captain Watson's, though she knew none of the family, to see if Mrs. Veal was there or not. They said, they wondered at her asking for that she had not been in town. They were sure if she had she would have been there. Says Mrs. Bargrave, I am sure she was with me on Saturday almost two hours. They said it was impossible, for they must have seen her if she had. In comes Captain Watson, while they were in dispute, and said that Mrs. Veal was certainly dead, and her escutcheons were making. This strangely surprised Mrs. Bargrave when she sent to the person immediately who had the care of them, and found it true. Then she related the whole story to Captain Watson's family, and what gown she had on, and how striped, and that Mrs. Veal had told her it was scoured. Then Mrs. Watson cried out, "'You have seen her indeed, for none knew but Mrs. Veal and myself that the gown was scoured.' And Mrs. Watson owned, that she described the gown exactly, for, she said, I helped her make it up. This Mrs. Watson blazed all about the town, and avouched the demonstration of the truth of Mrs. Bargrave's seeing Mrs. Veal's apparition, and Captain Watson carried two gentlemen immediately to Mrs. Bargrave's house, to hear the relation of her own mouth. And when it spread so fast that gentlemen and persons of quality, the judicious and sceptical part of the world, flocked in upon her, it at last became such a task that she was forced to go out of the way, for they were in general extremely satisfied with the truth of the thing, and plainly saw that Mrs. Bargrave was no hypochondriac, for she always appears with such a cheerful air and pleasing mien that she has gained the favour and esteem of all the gentry and it is thought a great favour if they can but get the relation from her own mouth. I should have told you before that Mrs. Veal told Mrs. Bargrave that her sister and brother-in-law were just come down from London to see her. Says Mrs. Bargrave, How came you to order matters so strangely? It could not be helped, says Mrs. Veal. And her brother and sister did come to see her, and entered the town of Dover just as Mrs. Veal was expiring. Mrs. Bargrave asked her whether she would drink some tea. Says Mrs. Veal, I do not care if I do, but I'll warrant you this mad fellow, meaning Mrs. Bargrave's husband, has broke all your trinkets. But, says Mrs. Bargrave, I'll get something to drink in for all that. 
But Mrs. Veal waved it, and said, It is no matter, let it alone. And so it passed. All the time I sat with Mrs. Bargrave, which was some hours, she recollected fresh sayings of Mrs. Veal. And one material thing more she told Mrs. Bargrave, that old Mr. Breton allowed Mrs. Veal ten pounds a year, which was a secret, and unknown to Mrs. Bargrave till Mrs. Veal told it her. Mrs. Bargrave never varies in her story, which puzzles those who doubt of the truth, or are unwilling to believe it. A servant in the neighbor's yard adjoining to Mrs. Bargrave's house heard her talking to somebody an hour of the time Mrs. Veal was with her. Mrs. Bargrave went out to her next neighbor's the very moment she parted with Mrs. Veal, and told her what ravishing conversation she had had with an old friend, and told the whole of it. Drelincourt's book of death is, since this happened, bought up strangely, and it is to be observed that notwithstanding all the trouble and fatigue Mrs. Bargrave has undergone upon this account, she never took the value of a farthing, nor suffered her daughter to take anything of anybody, and therefore can have no interest in telling the story. But Mr. Veal does what he can to stifle the matter, and said he would see Mrs. Bargrave. But yet it is certain matter of fact that he had been at Captain Watson's since the death of his sister, and yet never went near Mrs. Bargrave, and some of his friends report her to be a liar, and that she knew of Mr. Breton's ten pounds a year. But the person who pretends to say so has the reputation of a notorious liar, being among persons whom I know to be of undoubted credit. Now, Mr. Veal is more of a gentleman than to say she lies, but says, a bad husband has crazed her. But she needs only present herself, and it will effectually confute that pretense. Mr. Veal says he asked his sister on her deathbed whether she had a mind to dispose of anything, and she said no. Now, the things which Mrs. Veal's apparition would have disposed of were so trifling, and nothing of justice aimed at in their disposal, that the design of it appears to me to be only in order to make Mrs. Bargrave so to demonstrate the truth of her appearance, as to satisfy the world the reality thereof, as to what she had seen and heard, and to secure her reputation among the reasonable and understanding part of mankind. And then again Mr. Veal owns that there was a purse of gold, but it was not found in her cabinet, but in a comb-box. This looks improbable for that Mrs. Watson owned that Mrs. Veal was so very careful of the key and the cabinet that she would trust nobody with it. And if so, no doubt she would not trust her gold out of it. And Mrs. Veal's often drawing her hand over her eyes and asking Mrs. Bargrave whether her fits had not impaired her, looks to me as if she did it on purpose to remind Mrs. Bargrave of her fits, to prepare her not to think it strange that she should put upon writing to her brother to dispose of rings and gold, which looked so much like a dying person's request. And it took accordingly with Mrs. Bargrave as the effects of her fits coming upon her, and was one of the many instances of her wonderful love to her, and care of her, that she should not be affrighted, which indeed appears in her whole management, particularly in her coming to her in the daytime, waving the salutation, and when she was alone, and then the manner of her parting, 
to prevent a second attempt to salute her. Now, why Mr. Veal should think this relation a reflection, as it is plain he does by his endeavouring to stifle it, I cannot imagine, because the generality believe her to be a good spirit, her discourse was so heavenly. Her two great errands were to comfort Mrs. Bargrave in her affliction, and to ask her forgiveness for the breach of friendship, and with a pious discourse to encourage her, so that, after all, to suppose that Mrs. Bargrave could hatch such an invention as this from Friday noon till Saturday noon, supposing that she knew of Mrs. Veal's death the very first moment without jumbling circumstances, and without any interest, too, she must be more witty, fortunate, and wicked, too, than any indifferent person, I dare say, will allow. I asked Mrs. Bargrave several times if she was sure she felt the gown. She answered modestly, If my senses be to be relied upon, I am sure of it. I asked her if she heard a sound when she clapped her hand upon her knee. She said she did not remember she did, but said she appeared to be as much a substance as I did who talked with her. And I may, said she, be as soon persuaded that your apparition is talking to me now, as that I did not really see her, for I was under no manner of fear, and received her as a friend, and parted with her as such. I would not, says she, give one farthing to make any one believe it. I have no interest in it. Nothing but trouble is entailed upon me for a long time for aught I know, and had it not come to light by accident, it would never have been made public. But now, she says, she will make her own private use of it, and keep herself out of the way as much as she can, and so she has done since. She says she had a gentleman who came thirty miles to hear the relation, and that she had told it to a room full of people at a time. Several particular gentlemen have had the story from Mrs. Bargrave's own mouth. This thing has very much affected me, and I am as well satisfied as I am of the best-grounded matter-of-fact. And why we should dispute matter-of-fact, because we cannot solve things of which we can have no certain or demonstrative notions, seems strange to me. Mrs. Bargrave's authority and sincerity alone would have been undoubted in any other case. End of A Relation of the Apparition of Mrs. Veal by Daniel Defoe